Hi, my name is Ali Vignon, coach of the Flyers. Hey, I'm Travis Konechny. Hi, I'm Paul Holmgren. Hi, I'm Matt Niskanen. Hey, I'm Scott Lawton. Hi, I'm Joel Farabee. Hi, it's Derek Grant. Hi, this is Bob Clark. And you're, you're listening, listening to, to Snow the Goalie. 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 Oh, yes! Oh, no? Oh, maybe. Oh, it, it really depends. Welcome into Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, the People's Podcast, the Players Podcast, Prognosticator Podcast, PropCast, Knubelcast, Comcast. Huh? Once again, it's funny, we brought that up last week and then uh, we got to get into something uh, right off the, the top of the show. But the only Flyers podcast, despite what some people who are employed by the team might have you believe, it, it is in fact the only Flyers podcast. We're looking at you, Jason Martinez. I'm Russ Joy, at Joy on Broad, and as always... <laughs> By Mr. Happy himself, he's laughing. You can't see him right now, but he is laughing. Anthony mm-hmm. Sanfilippo, who you can find on Twitter, at Philly. Of course, the show is also available on Twitter, at SnowTheGoalie and Facebook.com slash SnowTheGoalie. Anthony, how are you? I'm doing great, Ross. How about yourself? I'm absolutely delightful and better rested this week. The baby is sleeping at the moment. <laughs> My wife is as well. They're just, uh, uh, it's, it's good. It's good. This week is better. It's a better week. I don't have my, uh, my bowl of coffee. I drank during uh, last week's crossing broadcast for those who uh, might have seen it. Was fu- it was funny because Kevin and Kevin and I were sitting, sitting here thinking, this is, this is like new parent hell. Not that you're a new parent, but you, you just had a, you have a newborn at home. Um, but like you have a, six, a six-year-old and a four-year-old running around already, or four and two, right? What are your, what are your four, children? Uh, almost five and three. Five and three. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was you're very close. You're very ballpark. close. Okay. Yeah. So five and three mm-hmm. and then a newborn. Mm-hmm. And then it was just funny. Like this, you did that entire podcast laying on your couch. Your hair was a mess. You had giant circles under your eyes, mm-hmm. and you had a bowl of coffee <laughs> that you were drinking. I love that mug just so to much. stay awake <laughs> to do the podcast with us. And we were just kind of cracking up because you, we could see the length of your day <laughs> through the just, zoom just across my face. Yep. <laughs> That was a great moment. That was a fun show. Uh, I think we'll do, uh, I think we're planning on what, Thursday night to do another crossing broadcast. So if you're not subscribed yeah. to that, go check it out on all of your podcast feeds. We've got to get into something. Uh, of course, we've got a, an interview, an extended interview that Anthony did by himself with uh, Ken Hitchcock. I, I just knew that if I got into an interview with Ken Hitchcock, I wouldn't be able to uh, do anything except ask him for an hour straight to just keep saying Eshy. Because I just loved how he says Robert Esch's last name. I don't know what it was about it. I actually, this is going to sound bad, Anthony. I think it's like the cutest thing. I know it's, I know it's like really strange, but there's something about like Hitch, just Hitch's appearance and him just going, oh, Eshy. And I'm just like, oh, that's adorable. It seems like a, like something you'd see from like the guy on the kids show, you know, oh, Eshy, good old friend. I, I couldn't have gotten through the interview without asking him to say it you know and, and i purposely asked a question about robert ash i i heard i when when just i went back for and you. listened to it i i cracked up i really did i loved it there are some great things in this interview by the way yeah and we'll we'll hit those thoughts on the other side of the uh the interview but really really great stuff with ken hitchcock very open very honest and uh very wide-ranging. Anthony, it was, uh, I think, one of your, your best performances. This was, this was a, a master class in, uh, in interviewing, so well done. Oh, thank you. Well done, I appreciate buddy. that. We'll, we'll get to that momentarily, but we have to start with a story, an exclusive that came through, crossingbroad.com. Um, it is a story that, that was put together 
over about the last week or so mm -hmm. uh, by yourself. I had a, a small contributing role in this, Kevin Kincaid, who's been doing a lot of the um, the overall team and and furloughing and um, just state of organization kind of stories covering. You know, he's the Sixers beat writer for the site, but he kind of did the uh, I wouldn't say it was a takedown, but he he did a, a really great investigative uh, report on the Sixers as the Sixers were making. Uh, potential cuts to staff, 20% uh, salary reductions, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's been really diving in on what teams are doing, not only in Philadelphia, but across the country uh, during this pandemic. And so he he was like right there through this whole thing, uh, doing the report. So you could see that on the site has all three names listed. It's posted by Mr. San Filippo over there, but three names on the thing. And, and um, the story changed from the time that, that it, it was originally proposed to what, what ended up on the site. And we can get into, and maybe we will, uh, some of the things that changed along the way and, and why stories change. And typically, what I would say with Crossing Broad has always been that if there's a story, you, you go with it, you make sure that the sourcing and the, the information is accurate. And as Philadelphia's most irreverent sports blog, you, you put out the truth and if it rubs people the wrong way that that's just how it goes and this i think was the first story that we've kind of had to go back to the drawing board on a few times uh not for poor information but we got we got well, the, we got the the little you know tread carefully yeah i mean so let me let me just before i mean uh, why don't you you know what i'll i'll kind of talk about that in a second why, why don't you just explain what the story is and then i'll then i'll take take everyone through the process. So the story is that um, per multiple sources, the Flyers and Comcast Spectacor have made the decision, uh, you know, since the pandemic started, there have been uh, people sourcing information uh, our way that there were furloughs that had been proposed, discussed within Comcast Spectacor, within the Flyers uh, for, um, you know, employees of, of each, Spectacor and uh, the Flyers. And that kind of flies in the face of what Brian Roberts, the chairman of Comcast and NBC Universal at the, the biggest, most macro level, has been uh, campaigning and, and really putting out there publicly uh, from the large, you know, the macro sense. He, he put up $500 million toward employees and, and supporting employees. So the idea of, of furloughs and cuts would seem to be, you know, in direct opposition to what the macro mandate had been from up high. But the, the information that was presented was credible. And we were going to, to run a story to that effect. Also included in that is that multiple sources have indicated that the Flyers slash Comcast Spectacor have effectively required their staff to use personal and vacation time on the on every fifth day uh, in order to maintain the salary or the the payment structure that already exists. And and there are some that that have said that is a natural pra uh, practice or has been a practice in other organizations. So that doesn't totally stand out as a weird thing. But maybe it does when you compare and you add into the, the uh, situation the fact that the Flyers have gone out and signed a senior vice president of marketing 
to a six-figure salary in the middle of a pandemic, but they haven't reported it, which is weird because typically when you hire an executive, especially a senior vice president of marketing, which has been a position that's been vacant since February, March? No, a little bit longer than that. I think it was back in November of last year. End was of that November. far back? Okay. Yeah, it was right around, I kind of remember it was right around um, the... Uh, it was right around the uh, Black Friday game when Joe Heller told me that, that, he, that he was leaving. So I think, I think that's when he told me. So it was okay. probably early December when he left. Um, but if I remember correctly, that's when it was. And so we can, so let's, let's say it was November. Even if you want to be conservative, say it was December, whatever. The Flyers have, have existed, survived, done A-OK. We've been kind of down on some of the marketing tactics. The flyer die thing always had the potential to come back and, and not look so great. It happened. The now or never thing, the all or nothing, whatever. We weren't exactly big fans of it. We got a lot of nothing right now. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of going out and hiring this next senior vice president of marketing, you know, on the surface, you could say, well, there's really no point right now because there's nothing going on. The sport is currently on hiatus. Maybe you want to start to think about the plans for next year, but it's weird that you would make that hire and not only not announce it publicly, but they didn't even announce it internally per, per multiple sources. When, when we reached out to various people from throughout the organization about that hire specifically, nobody knew what was going on. Not a soul had any idea that this was a thing that happened. In fact, I, I don't even think, at least the people that I talked to, said they didn't even know that, that there were people currently being considered, that there had even been interviews for the position. Uh, and so why does it matter? Well, <laughs> North Carolina, in the Fayetteville Observer, they announced that, uh, that this hire was, was being made, that Mark Zarther was leaving the Fayetteville Woodpeckers, a, they're a Class A affiliate of the Houston Astros. They reported this back on May 4th, that he was leaving that position to take this job with the Flyers. That was on May 4th, friends. That was 15 days ago. And yet the Flyers have not made an announcement, not publicly and not internally. That's strange. That's not normal. And so you wonder, why would you not make that announcement? And the only thing that stands here, the only thing that makes sense is they didn't like what the optics were going to look like of hiring somebody to a six-figure salary in the middle of a pandemic. And why would that matter? Because perhaps the multiple sources who came forward and said, furloughs are on the table, furloughs have been proposed on at least one occasion, if not twice, maybe more. The juxtaposition and the optics of hiring somebody to a, a, lot, a large salary, while you're also forcing your employees to take time, uh, paid time, their vacation time, their personal time, and using that for every fifth day, and potentially having furloughs, those optics don't look good. And they saw what happened from their tenants, the Philadelphia 76ers, when they went after the 20% reduction of salary, they saw how that blew up in their face. They saw how the Sixers became the laughing stock of the NBA, the national media. Everybody had their targets on the Sixers. So clearly, they didn't want to have this go out and, and be a public thing. So now, all of that, that's all what, that's in the story. That's a little bit of the, the backstory of what led to everything, that led to the reporting, that led to the sourcing. And now I leave it up to the man yeah, so we had that story. It was brought to our attention a week ago. Um, and, you know, so we started digging in, calling around, talking to the people that we needed to talk to. And the original story was going to be all about 
the fact that there were going to be very likely going to be uh, either layoffs or furloughs or both for uh, Flyers and Comcast Spectacore employees uh, coming before the end of the fiscal year, which is June 30th, but we were also told that it was very likely going to happen by the end of this month, by the end of May. So really within two weeks. So we said, okay, we got to get the story out um, quick because that, you know, from an advocacy perspective, if we get the story out and it's true and, you know, this is truly going to happen, they're going to lay people off. Maybe we, maybe we shame them (laughs) <laughs> in a lot of ways, it, like the public shamed the Sixers for what they were going to do, and then they decide not to do it. At the very, at the very least, right? It, it's a news story. It's certainly a news story, and it needed to be told. But it, you know, when you're thinking about the people that are actually you know, that have jobs, you want to you want to help them make sure that they keep their job, right? I mean, there's a lot of really good people who still work for both the Philadelphia Flyers and and Comcast Spectacor, and you don't want to see anybody lose their jobs. So, you know, putting this out there, maybe it helps. Maybe it, does. it gives them a, a fighter's chance, right? So we, we spend a few days, you know, talking to people. Um, I wrote the very first draft. I mean, I, you know, you had to contribute and Kevin had to contribute, but the, the, I wrote the very initial draft for the team um, last Thursday, uh, I think it was. My Thursday night. Thursday night. Um, over the weekend, we kind of, you know, got some more information, massaged it, put it all together. And the plan was originally for it to be posted um, on Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but we wanted to, obviously, we wanted to give um, you know, the Flyers and Comcast Spectacore and Comcast Corporate itself an opportunity to comment. I mean, that's the only, that's the fair way to do it. It's the, you know, the true journalistic way. Which it's funny you had mentioned, you know, that this is not one of the things that we normally do. This is not the normal procedure for crossing broad. Usually it's something that, you know, make sure that it's accurate, but get it up and get a quick opinion out there, be a little bit irreverent and go with it, right? But, you know, here's me, the, you know, the 20 plus year journalist, you know, with the, who used to work for a newspaper. They say you have ink in your blood, right? Um, here's me saying, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Let's, do, let's try and do it the traditional way. Let's take our time. Let's go through. Let's, it's better to be, you know, right than first, okay? Um, I, not that I was worried that someone else was going to scoop us on the story, but at the same time, there was no reason to rush it out. Plus, we also didn't want to give them a ch- give the um, uh, the Flyers and Comcast Spectacore an opportunity. Like if we reached out to them on Friday, and you know the spokespeople would say, "Well, yeah, we're working on it. We're working on it," and then they don't get back to us by five o'clock, right on Friday. Now they have all weekend to prepare, you know, some kind of statement or whatever the case might be. And and you know that's a little disingenuous as well. I mean, we want to be fair, but at the same time, we don't want to sabotage the story. So we're going to wait until Monday morning to reach out to them and, and have them make the comment. So we do. So Monday morning comes and we're, we're going to, you know, we send emails out and we're waiting for them to get back to us. In the meantime, we're putting the, we're doing some final edits. Okay. And we were literally, I don't know, 20 minutes from posting. We were, we were kind of just doing the final edits when the spokesperson for Comcast Spectacore got back to us. And at that point, they wanted to make a comment. We were like, okay, fine. So they said, they said, can you give us a half hour? We want to, yeah, obviously got to get, the spokesperson's got to get through approvals, through all the up, higher ups. We said, no problem. Half hour is not a big deal. So then they send the comment. And the comment was a one sentence comment that says there are no plans for 
layoffs or furloughs at either the Flyers or Comcast Spectacle. Well, now this completely changes the story. Now, it doesn't mean that what we had was, we were told by our sources was wrong. It doesn't mean what the Flyers or what the uh, Comcast Spectacle spokesperson said is accurate. It, 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 it could still be that they're just trying to buy time. It could be you know, any number of things. So what we have to do now is now we have to write this as a real down the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Let's look at the positives of it. Let's look at the negatives of it. And let's, ex- let's express both of them, both the positives and the negatives, and then let the reader determine you know, what they want to make of the story. And, and that's very old fashioned <laughs> journalistic style. And so with that, we had to make more, we had to rewrite, which is what I spent um, part of uh, yesterday, Monday doing. Um, and then on Tuesday, uh, we kind of had like our final editing conversation. And then we put the story out on Tuesday. Um, so that's really kind of the process for it. And now, of course, there are some things that are, that are not said in the story that we know. Um, and, the, and you said, well, why? Why didn't you put the, why is not everything? Why are there details left out? When you have a story that, that is sourced like this, there's, a, there's only so many people who would be privy to a, uh, a, a, a wide ranging or a batch, as we called it in the story, a batch layoff of employees. So with that said, we can't burn our source, right? We can't get our, our source in trouble. At least our pro- we, had, we had multiple people who we talked to and can confirm this, but the primary source of information is, is probably the person who would have gotten burned the easiest and the fastest if we said everything we knew. So we also had to be careful in how certain things were worded. And there were probably a couple of specifics that we had to leave out that would have led the organization and the company to know where we got the information. And it's, it's imperative as a reporter, and I, I tell people this all the time, it's imperative that you protect your sources. I mean, you, we're protected by federal law in that vein. Like we do not, we would never have to give up a source. I mean, it's, it's protected information, right? So um, it's like, it's almost like attorney client privilege in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, So that is, that's protected. But at the same time, you got to write a story in a certain way that you don't, you don't let your source be unmasked. And so therefore we kind of had to massage this a little bit. And so is there a lot here, Russ? Yeah, there's a lot, okay? I mean, you went through it all and you, you broke it down and, and I think you did a nice job. I mean, it's, to me, you know, the fact that they say that they're not gonna do any furloughs, I think that's great. That's great news, but they considered it. 100%, I guarantee you, I, because of, of who, we, who we spoke to, I can guarantee you that it was something that was being discussed whether it was actually going to be the final plan, I, I can't say publicly 100% one way or the other. I kind of think it was. If I'm, if I'm going to offer an, a, an opinion on it, I think from what I know that this was something that was going to happen. 
with Comcast Spectacor on the Flyers. Um, but I, I can guarantee with 100% certainty that it was considered. Now, th- so that's an issue, number one. So, uh, you know, you, you worry about all these people with their jobs and whatever. And, and we, we hope that, you know, they can hang on until hockey season comes back. They get a little bit of the revenue uh, that they're going to have from TV. Hockey And the NHL is a gate revenue. Uh, mm-hmm. They rely on the gate for majority of their money, okay? And so you're going to have games with no fans. <sighs> I don't know if just what you get off the TV is going to be enough to save everybody, but maybe it is. Maybe it's enough to get them through to the start of the 2020-2021 season when people can start coming back. Let's hope. All right. But aside from that, and you pointed this out you know, very eloquently, is that you're hiring a new senior vice president of marketing in the middle of a global pandemic. Now, who, by the way, let's let's be let's be a little bit fair to the guy they hired because he might be great. <laughs> Zarthur, from from what has been reported, yeah, has done an exceptional job, not just a, a decent job. So let's clear the air here very quickly because it's entirely possible because we know that there are people who reside high up within the Flyers and Comcast Spectacor who are listening to the show right now and are probably clenching fists. And this is no disrespect. We want to make sure that, you know, if, uh, if Mr. Zarthur ends up listening to the show or gets a little tip of the, the cap that, hey, you were brought up on this show, Mark Zarthur, at 32 years of age, merely three years older than me, is now the executive vice president of marketing for one of the top franchises in the entire NHL, one of the mm-hmm. most recognizable, one of the most passionate. That's a heck of an accomplishment. And by the way, like he's done it at a young age and has done an exceptional job from, from all reports, did an exceptional job of leading this fledgling franchise uh, at, at the single A level to being a, a legitimate, solid, well done, well marketed franchise. That's, that's fantastic. That's a really good hire. So we have nothing against him. No, so no. Let's, so let's just make sure that for yeah. the sake of, of whatever that we're clearing the air, we have nothing against the guy they hired. He's probably going to do a really good job. Probably a very solid hire. Yeah. It's I, the I, optics and the timing. And, and again, I come back to the fact that like it's out there. It wasn't brought up. You know, I, I don't know. Should the Flyers, should Comcast Spectacor have an issue with the fact that it was even announced at all in, you know, the Fayetteville it's Fayetteville, right? Not Fayetteville. Fayetteville. It's Fayetteville, North Carolina. That that it was announced there. Like I don't know. Maybe maybe you know they're going to be upset that the story ever ran. But it also ran on MinorLeagueBaseball.com. It did. It did. <laughs> so it wasn't like and it was. That was and by the way, that was, that was a somewhat separate one. I think I dropped that in Slack. It was a, yeah. a little bit of a different story. But regardless, good hire. The timing and the fact that they didn't make any kind of announcement. You know, we, we could come back, and, and this wasn't meant to derail you, but, like, no public statement, fine. You don't like how the optics look. How do you not do an, an internal memo? How is there no internal? That's a big position. Like, we're not talking about, hey, we hired an, a new sales manager. You know, we hired somebody who's now going to oversee the, the ticket operations side of, of the organization. No, like, you hired a senior vice president. How is this not big news? Yeah, no, it is. And, and so, but the, so the thing of it is, is, so this position is a, well, is a 
you know, well-paid position. Okay. We're talking a six figure salary comfortably into the six figures. If I had to guess, and I'm just going to throw this out there because I, you know, I, I don't know with hundred percent certainty, but I have an idea kind of what they pay their, their people there. And I think that his salary is going to be around $200,000 a year Good for him okay. around to good. Great good for, for Mark's Arthur. Yeah. But think about this now, Russ. And, and this is something that I, I thought about after we published the story. And I'm like, God, you know, I should have probably listed this in, you know, in the story as well. They recently also announced that Eric Lindros was brought on as an ambassador. So he's a paid employee of the organization now. I, I got to imagine that that, in order to get that deal done, that they're paying him a pretty penny as well. What it is, I don't know but I guarantee you it's, it's a similar salary to this. So now you, you bring in Lindros at a big salary. You bring in this guy, Mark Zarther, to run marketing at a big salary. And yet, you're asking your rank and file employees to use up their personal time and their vacation time one day a week during this COVID-19 pandemic so that they can still take home the same paycheck every two weeks. That's where the optics go wrong for me. And they go wrong even a little bit further for me. Because if in fact they went ahead with layoffs, which they now tell us they're not gonna do, good for them that they're not going to. But if that was the plan, which I still submit is what was discussed and what was you know, going to happen, then it's nefarious. Because what then they were doing is they were saying to, saying to their employees, you have to use up all your personal time and vacation time to work these days. And so you're doing it over the course of, you know, two and a half months, okay? Maybe, maybe as many as three and a half months if you push it all the way to June 30th. So pay, basically use all that up and then they may lay you off. Now, when you get laid off, usually you get your remaining vacation time as a, as a lump sum in, in that final paycheck. Yep. Well, if they've burned, if they forced you to burn it and then lay you off in, a, in essence, what they did was they gave you a 20% salary reduction for two, three months. Okay. Unannounced, but that's what they did. Okay. And then they laid you off because you're now not going to get that lump sum salary as well. Okay. So that's, so it's one thing if you keep your job. If you keep the job and you've got to burn it up, yeah, it's kind of a 20% layoff, but you know what? You're 20% reduction in salary, but you're getting paid the money you were going to get paid anyway, and you're off at those days. You're not really working. It's not the kind of vacation you wanted, but it's something that you can kind of settle for, right? But if you were then going to lose your job because of COVID-19, and you aren't going to collect on that anyway. Now you've basically, you went through three months, two to three months of a 20% salary reduction. All while they're bringing in people in six-figure salaries. And that to me is where it doesn't sit well. And that's why this, is a, this isn't a nothing burger of a story. There's, there's a lot more to this story that should upset people. And maybe, maybe the general fan doesn't get upset because, oh, I don't, you know, it's the business side of the sport. I really don't care about it. I only care about what goes on on the ice. I get it. But you got to remember that these are real people that are working, you know, they're, this is their livelihood. This is, these are their jobs. And, you know, we don't want to see anybody lose a job. We don't want to see anybody struggle to, you know, make ends meet. 
this is important stuff. And it just seemed like a really crappy approach for the organization and the company to take with their own employees. Listen, there's a, I think there's another side to this. There's a devil's advocate side to this. It's very easy to argue. And, and look, if, if the team of Comcast Spectacore wanted to argue it, I don't, I don't know if we could say that they're, they're wrong, which is the Lindros deal was probably something they worked on for a really long time and they finally it executed it. And it, and it, that's timing, right? That, well, but, why, but why now? I mean, they could have waited till next season, well, right? I mean, they, they might look. They got to fly might, him in from Toronto every time they, they need. They might have. They might have felt better about knowing, hey, he finally committed, and we can lock him in. Maybe we don't. We don't want to let it sit another six months. He might. Could be. You know, might get cold feet. I don't. I. You know, you could. You could look at it like that and say you can't fault them. You can look at the hire here and say they were going to have to do it at some point anyway, and maybe this is the way that this is the amount of time they think they needed to be able to set up their marketing campaign for for next year. I don't know. I think that's an easy thing to, to bring up. What I think is weird is, I believe it was Kevin, reached out to the organization to ask for a comment on the hiring of Zarthur, and they didn't respond. Which, again, like, it's just weird to me. Like, that, that's where, like, I think it would have just been easy. They could have said, you know, it could have even been like a, a, an off-the-record kind of thing, like, hey, we are going to make that announcement. We can acknowledge that that there was a hire that's been made and we're going to be announcing it in the next week. And that could have been part of it. And that would have been fine. You know, I would have been Russ. I would have been happy with, Hey, I'll look into it. We'll get back to you. Yeah. They didn't respond to that at all. It, it's just like, I think that's weird. I just think it's, it's just strange. Like that's yeah. why I think you can even take the devil's advocate that devil's advocate part of this and just going, eh, it's still weird. It's still oddly timed. Um, Look, there, there are things, and this is the last thing I think I'll, I'll say about this, but before being in this capacity, I used to get really mad because I would hear reporters talk about, oh, you know, there's some, some things you can't report. And I'd be like, well, why? And I see this in, in Facebook groups all the time uh, with the Flyers stuff. It's, well, if, if a reporter knows something, why don't they just tell us? Like, they owe the fans to let them know. And I, listen, I, I get that. And if you're listening to the show right now and you're thinking, man, you guys should just spill the beans and like burn the source and who cares? It's like, okay, you could, or you protect that source and that source provides you with even more information for an even bigger story. Mm-hmm. And then- It's building trust there, is what there it are is. More, there are more things that you can, you can work out with that person. And what I will and, say- and, and, let and, me say, and let me say this in, in response to that too, Russ. It's not like we don't want to spill the beans. Like- it's not like I, these things were told to me and I was like, okay, all right, I'll just keep it. Like we, we try to find a way, hey, can, how, can we, how can we say this? Can we say this and still protect the sword? Like we look for, for angles and look for ways to say it. But if there's, like if we can't, if we can't do that, then it's just, you can't put somebody at risk like that. You can't put somebody's job at risk like that, you know, because they could get in trouble. If, it, if they get found out and they could lose their job, right? I mean, that's, like, that's, well, that's another back, part of it. I mean, this even comes back to, what, almost two years ago now with the Hextall thing. Right. Yeah, right? go ahead. Go ahead. Tell that. Go ahead. Because, I mean, I used it as, an, as, as a, as a conversation. We were in conversation, and I'll say this too. You know, and I'm not – this isn't being critical of, of our maestro, Kyle Scott, but we had some conversation back and forth during this process of this story about what we should say, what we shouldn't say, what we can say, what we can't say, 
um, you know, you know how to go, what to put the headline, you know, and I personally am not, I'm not a huge fan of the, of the headline we chose, but it, it is what we chose. Um, so, but, and I used the Hextall example as, as something there that's like, you know, this is, this is why we have to go with it the way we go with it. So go ahead. You can, you can take that. Now, am I allowed to say, well, so, so two, <laughs> two years ago, right. It was uh, the black Friday game, right? Flyers Rangers. Yep. We go on the press row show and everybody was thinking, Oh, you know, Hackstall is going to get fired. And that was, that was the thing that had been going on for God the entire season. I mean, even going back to the previous season, the idea of, are they going to fire Hackstall? Is Hackstall going to fall on the sword for his guy? Blah, blah, blah. And we get ready to go on for the press row show. And I think it was for pregame and you got a call. I think it was, you got a call. And you like up and left and it was weird because you don't usually do that unless it's to go get a, a beverage that you never, you know, offer to get me. It's fine. And so Anthony, I thought is like, you know, heading over to the, uh, to get a brisk iced tea and he comes back and right before we hit start for the stream, he goes, what if I told you that there, I might have to edit this, that there is a, there's been a meeting or there's going to be a meeting and that Ron Hextall might not make it. Well, I think I said. I think the exact thing I said was, "What if I said to you that the general manager gets fired before the coach?" That is what you said. I just didn't know if I was allowed to say. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> this is me trying to toe that line, you know. Yeah. Um, and I remember just saying, like, "This is." A th- I was like, "Anthony, we have to, we have to put this out because the what? What's the best way to put this? I hate. I absolutely despise that." crossing broad which used to be very tmz ish and had a bad reputation and had its own rep before that the name of the site is still something that some people hold vitriol for because they don't like kyle and they are unwilling to look at the change in the site and the people who are involved and the work that's done with with us with the flyers with kevin with the sixers with bob with the phillies and they just cannot look past the site name. And there have been things that we've brought up and there have been things that we have reported before other people and we have not gotten credited on. And some of it has been like, you know, small stuff around the fringes. And then some stuff has been bigger. And there are just, there are people who hold a grudge that just for the the reasons I outlined, do not acknowledge it. And it sucks. And I actually had a conversation with somebody else who. Uh, like runs one of the um, the rumor sites, right? One of the Twitter accounts for NHL rumors. Who's had great information throughout the lockout, even or the um, the pandemic, you know, pause um, beforehand, after has 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 some really solid league sources. And we kind of went back and forth. That's NHL rumors daily. I'll give him a shout out. Met him at one of the the Flyers games this season. Uh, there is a hesitance or a reluctance or an unwillingness to cite certain people or certain sources or certain reporters, certain accounts, whatever, with good information. And that is incredibly frustrating to me. So I said to you at the time, we have to run with this. We have to put it out because if we, if we do and these other people don't credit us for it, they're going to look horrible. And, it, and if nothing else, it's going to look good on us. And now we're going to pick up all these people who are going to know that this is a place that they can come for breaking news. And then you and I had to go with this back and forth about 
you know, protecting sources, protecting sources. And I was still wearing more of my fan hat than my whatever this is hat. And I was like, no, this is BS. Like, we, like no, we have to figure out a way to report it. So I tried to goad you on uh, the Press Row show about, you know, is it possible, Anthony, that, you know, maybe Dave Hextall isn't the first one to lose his job? Like, is there any possibility that Ron Hextall... And I think if you go back, and you would have to scroll back through... Um, we were putting that on the Facebook page at that point, right? That was yeah. on the crossing. Yeah. You would have to scroll back to November of 18 yep. uh, uh, on the crossing broad Facebook page and find it. I actually think it was first intermission. I don't think it was pregame. I think it was first intermission. Okay. Cause I, if I recall correctly, that the call came at the end of the period. Okay. And I, I, I might be wrong. I mean, I, whatever. It was press. Rush I'm just saying, if you go back and look Yeah. and it, when Russ asks that question, look at my facial expression. Cause I remember going back and watching it and I just, it's like, I must, there was like, almost like an eye roll. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe he's putting me on the spot with this <laughs> right now. The people are watching and I have to come up with a, a response and I can't say what I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was pretty. And then if you remember when it came out, I wrote the post and this has been like the inside joke with crossing broad for like two years now. Yeah. I did a, I did a post and I said, we had it first. <laughs> and it was a picture of Hextall. And then it's just like this copious amount of like pulling every muscle in my body, patting us on the back uh, with like links to the Press Row Show, links to Snow the Goalie, where we discussed certain things about the possibility, blah, blah, blah. And then it got, it got pulled down. Kyle, we got really mad. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> and actually it was funny because when the story went out kevin kevin like was looking at it at the time and he's like are are you sure this is how you want it to go i'm like i don't know man like this is kyle said you know if we had the information first we should say that we had it first i'm like well we had it as a ron hextall fired we had it first yeah you were you were like really kissing my ass in in that i was (laughs) was because i'm like look here it is here's the guy he's telling the truth like he's got the sources there we are yeah i wouldn't do that now but i did then (laughs) and uh Anyway, so for people who are like, oh, why don't you just, you know, burn the source? That's why. And um, I will say this. One of the fun things that I've enjoyed is um, meeting people who work within the organization who I think I'm disarming. I think if if there's one thing that I bring to the table. You're very good at it. People like to, when people talk to me, they sometimes tell me things that they shouldn't tell me. Not because I'm going to go off and report it, but just like it happens. They realize they didn't say it's off the record. We look at each other. I'm like, I got you. And everything's fine. But I will say that there are some people that I reached out to and that I had conversations with leading up to the story. And I uncovered at least one other thing that I think if it, if it made it public would not be a great look for the organization, another cutting measure. And that's why I think more than anything that the furloughs were a legitimate thing that were discussed because at least one of the other things that I've heard the team is looking to cut uh, back on would be a real bad look. And it would just kind of once again, fall in line with some of the kinds of cuts that the organization has made. Um, how, how much in detail do I want to go since, um, since the passing of Ed Snyder, we've seen a, a pretty consistent pattern of, you know, if you were a Snyder hire, you're not long for this world with the organization. Mm-hmm. And if, if you were part of anything that was an Ed Snyder plan or an Ed Snyder initiative or anything to that effect, this crew wants to get rid of it. And look, 
I get it. There is a part of me that says, you know what, Dave Scott, Al Camillo, I get why they want to put their brand on the organization. They want to turn the page because a lot of people, in fairness, said that the Flyers needed to get away from being the good old Flyers, the, the old good old boys club. And I get it. I do. Because I was one of the people who said they need to change things. It has to happen. But there is a human element to this. And that's the thing that I, I've kind of changed my tune on a little bit here is, especially at this point in time, given everything that's going on, given the fact that so many Americans who've been filing for unemployment and are still waiting for their stimulus checks, are still waiting for their unemployment, have lost their jobs. Comcast is a big enough company. Comcast slash NBC Universal is a big enough company that they can, and Brian Roberts, who's the chairman of the large company, has said they want to keep people employed. They have the resources to do it, and they should do it. It is the right thing to do. It's not the best thing for the bottom line, but it's the right thing to do. And if you have the ability to do it, you should. And so that's where I'm at. Yeah. I don't disagree with you, Russ. I think it's, I think that your take is, is spot on. And, uh, it, you know, I think that there's a different belief at the corporate, at the corporate level of Comcast and there is at the, you know, corporate level of Comcast Spectacore and of, of the flyers and it's different, it's different mindsets. It's different people running these, running these companies, you know, and I, you know, Brian Roberts has been here for, forever and you know he knows this city he knows this town he knows these people not to say that dave scott doesn't dave scott's been here a long time too but he definitely has a different approach to the way he runs a business mm -hmm. and then val she's not from here she's come in from out of out of the area same thing with mike shane who's the you know the business guy the chairman of business operations for the or president of business operations for the flyers and for Wells Fargo center. Like they're not from, they don't, they don't know how much this matters to people here. They don't, they, I just don't think that they, they get it. And that's a shame. I'm trying to think of how I, how do I want to say this? You and I come at this from a very different way because you, we used to work for the team. Mm -hmm. You have relationships with people who have worked at all different levels of the organization. I think you feel much more of a loyalty to those people more than anything than, than I as somebody who's never been employed by the, the team would. I, uh, on a lot of levels, want to give latitude to the people who are the decision makers of the organization. And I'm sure that they are not happy that we ran the story at all. I'm sure they haven't been thrilled with some of the things that we've said on the show or that we've written. I know that they're aware of it because we've gotten that passed on to us that, that they're not exactly the biggest fans of Snow the Goalie. And that's okay. But I guess because they're listening, we'll just, we'll just say this now. Please just do the right thing. Just do the right thing for the people. I know the bottom line isn't looking great, but you're good people if you make the right call. And as of right now, the right call appears to be made. Thank you for keeping these people employed. Let's turn the page and get to the interview with former Flyers coach Ken Hitchcock. And how do we how do I put this? Ken Hitchcock. I'm I'm sad that I couldn't be on the interview, not because of the Eshy thing. Although, God, I love listening to him say Eshy. Uh, Ken Hitchcock was in charge of some of my favorite teams, and really, I don't know what you consider to be like the foundational moments 
uh, of a of a person's life of you know you look back at a certain team does it happen when you're in middle school does it happen when you're in high school does it happen in college is it that whole conglomerate thing where you really build your fandom and Hitchcock was in charge for a lot of those teams and I remember being absolutely devastated at my eighth grade prom yes we called it eighth grade prom when the Flyers dropped game seven to the Tampa Bay Lightning I remember being absolutely devastated and I remember and and it's something that you talk about in this interview with with Ken about Sammy Kapanen having to play defense Mm -hmm. and I just remember being so gutted and feeling like this team deserved to win the Stanley Cup. And the hockey they played, they deserved it. And there have been plenty of teams that have come through and that we've said, man, that was a, a disappointing playoff exit or uh, that, you know, that team probably could have gone on and gone deeper. That team should have won the Stanley Cup and should honestly, I think, be looked at in a much more positive and and almost nostalgic kind of light it should have a 93 phillies feel and it doesn't yes that was was about to say it's the kind of team that gets close doesn't win it but the personalities the the likability the the dominance but not actually being able to to come up with it that should be a team that should be held in in some kind of high regard and i don't feel like they have been. And listen, Philadelphia, whether you want to admit it or not, as you're listening to this, maybe you're about to hate me for saying this. Philadelphia likes losers. They do. And it's okay. It's okay to admit it once you're open to the concept. Oh no, we only like winners. No, like there are players and there are teams that have not gotten the job done that we hold in high regard. The Buddy Ryan Eagles teams didn't win Jack Diddley's squad, but yet you see that Kelly Green jersey and you think about you know, those Buddy Ryan defenses, and everybody lights up. You think about that 93 Phillies team, they didn't get it done. But you know what? People love to talk about them. That 2000-2001 Philadelphia 76ers team where Allen Iverson steps over Tyron Lue, and it's like, oh, my God, do you remember the step over? No, you remember what I remember? They got their asses kicked for four straight games and got knocked out of the NBA Finals by by a superior Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal-led team. That's what I remember. But, no, we like to kind of – take these moments in history in Philly sports history, these teams that don't get it done. And we like to hold them up, but yet that team, that flyers team isn't in that, that same kind of vein. I think it's so, so if I look back at it and you know, and I, the flyers, you know, I guess they've been, they were good for much of my youth and into, into my adulthood. Um, and you can sit there and, and say, you go, you can go as far back really as to when I was a real little kid and say, well, that 76 team that went back for three in a row and lost to Montreal, they were really good and probably, you know, they should, they could have won, but Montreal was the better team in 80. Yeah. They could have won the Stanley cup, but the Islanders were the better team. The two teams in the mid eighties, uh, I, I was probably more emotionally invested in the 87 flyers than any team that I've ever watched the flyers play. They lost to Edmonton, both in 85 and 87 87 going game seven against Edmonton. I mean, that's probably the, the most, you know, heartbreaking of them all. Lose, lose seven games to that great team, but that was the greatest team ever assembled, and you lost to them. So it's not like that Flyers team should have won. Where they were you in life as, in 87? This isn't me making my age jokes as normal. How old was I? Yeah. 13. So, okay, we're talking about the same – yeah, the same, same thing. Okay, same same thing. So yeah, it's a, I it's was emotionally high, invested. But, middle but, high school. Yeah. Okay. But they but they should not have won that series. You know what I'm saying? Like Edmonton was definitely the better team. The fact that they went seven games with them, fascinating, unbelievable. 
the 97 team that was the choking situation. Yeah, they were favored against Detroit and probably should have won. But you know what? Detroit was a really, really good team that should have won in 95 and blew it. 96, lost to Colorado in the conference final. And then they finally got over the hump in 97. And then, of course, if they won the Stanley Cup again the next year, 98. So maybe you sit there and say, oh, the Flyers were favored, but were they really the better team? Probably not. The team that was the best team that never won was the 04, 03-04 Flyers mm-hmm. that didn't win. And they would have won. And you'll hear Hitch talk about them a, a good amount. They would have won the Stanley Cup if they had any semblance of a defense. They had no defense left in the, uh, in, in the uh, conference final against Tampa and still went seven games. That's how good of a team they were. So anyway, I don't want to take up you know, too much of, of Hitch's time. Let's, uh, let's roll the tape. Let's uh, get to the Ken Hitchcock interview because I'll tell you what, it was one of my favorites for him to sit down and talk hockey with me for an hour. I mean, this is a, this is a Hall of Fame coach, the third winningest coach in the history of the NHL, a Stanley Cup champion coach. It's, it's one of the interviews I'll always remember. Let's get to that interview now. We'd like to welcome into the Snow the Goalie podcast, former Flyers coach and Stanley Cup winning coach, and now uh, being honored all over Canada. Uh, you just got the, um, uh, the uh, uh, Order of Hockey in Canada in 2019, I believe it was announced, Hitch. Uh, Ken Hitchcock joins us here on the program. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is, gonna, this is a real special treat for us here in Philadelphia uh, to have you on the program. Uh, thanks, Anthony. It's great to be on. I, I, I really uh, felt a connection when I was in Philadelphia. I loved, I loved living there. I loved uh, everything about coaching the Flyers. It was a great experience for me. Yeah, and, and we'll, get, we'll get to your time with the Flyers, but I, I really want to start way back in the beginning because I, I want to find out a little bit about I don't think people quite know the story about how you got into coaching um, because I know it started in Kamloops, but, but it really like there was not a lot of, of history behind that. And then as we go through it, I'm going to point out just throughout your career, how many different Flyers connections you had, even when you weren't in Philadelphia, with whether the players that you coached either before they got here or that yeah, they, they coached, went with you after they were here in Philadelphia. Um, but I want to start at the very, very beginning because uh, you had a great run of success in Kamloops. But how, how did you get there? How did you end up becoming a coach uh, in the WHL? Well, Anthony, first of all, my father was a coach. My, my father, uh, I, I became really interested in coaching at a young age because I followed my dad around. Um, he was part of the feeder system into the Detroit Red Wings. So my dad was involved with the, with the Edmonton Junior B Red Wings at that time, which fed the Oil Kings, the junior team, which fed the Flyers, which was the farm team for the Detroit Red Wings. So I was around the Detroit Red Wings when I was when I was four or five years old, and I was around my dad's practices when I was that that age. So I, I saw a lot of that. Um, and and I when I got into coaching, I got in really young. I got in when I was really my first gig in coaching was at the junior B level, and I I got in. I was actually coaching guys that I was out drinking and carousing with, and. It, <laughs> it was all the guys that I grew up going to school with and playing golf with. And, and, uh, I ended up coaching, uh, the, the coach ended up resigning and then halfway through the year I took over and that was in 1972. The following year, an opening was there to coach midget hockey, which at that time was 15 and 16 years of age. And, uh, I got the job and I, I, I stayed in that midget program for 12 years until I applied for the job in, 
in Kamloops, I, I, I was asked to apply two other times, two years previous in, two, in other organizations, and I didn't feel I was ready for it. And I didn't really want to do it full time um, because I had a great job and I loved living in Edmonton. But then I, for whatever reason, I just, I felt like going to Kamloops was the right thing for me. And uh, I applied and ended up getting the job. And it started on my coaching journey where I basically coached for a living. Yeah. And you had a great run uh, in Kamloops. Um, Six years there, uh, four division titles, two WHL titles, uh, second best record for a coach all time in, uh, in the Western Hockey League. And, and you coached some great players while you were there. Um, and uh, it's funny, there was, I went through your, your rosters and I found six connections to the Flyers, almost as if Kamloops was a little bit of a feeder you know, to the Flyers. Uh, you had uh, Greg Hawgood, Robbie DeMaio, Brian Benning, Craig Berube for a season. Of course, Mark Recchi, uh, probably the best name out of there, and then even Len Barry. So um, it's, I think it's kind of interesting how one group of players uh, ended up coming to uh, one team all around the same time. You know what, Anthony? Our, that organization that in, in Kamloops was way ahead of its time in regards to how to run an organization. Um, we had three times as many scouts uh, as any team in the Western Hockey League. And the reason we did is that the general manager, Bob Brown, uh, who was Rob's father, um, we figured out a plan where we could, uh, in, in, we could acquire guys that were retired and had a pension that still had a passion to be involved in hockey. And so we, we, we had such a huge scouting program and so many people on our staff and we didn't have to pay them a full-time salary because they were receiving pension from their workplace anyways. And they were passionate hockey people. We had a lot of summer programs that were in place that you see in place now where players came in early and we, we used specific people at the university and at the high schools that trained these athletes. So for me, Kamloops was 10 years ahead of its time as far as recruiting as far as scouting and as far as developing players and I think it allowed me to end up with a lot of good hockey players all at the same time. Now how did you make your connection with the Flyers because after six years in Kamloops you end up taking an assistant coaching job with Philadelphia for for three years before you became a head coach again. Uh, Yeah Russ Farwell became the general manager of the Philadelphia Flyers and Russ was coaching in in Medicine Hat in Seattle before I got there. And he asked me to come on board with the organization. And actually, when I went down to Philadelphia, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if it was going to be involved being with the Flyers or being involved with Hershey. And when I interviewed with Paul Holmgren, um, and uh, he, he said, he, after the interview, he said, I'd like you to come on our staff. And he said, I'm, I'm going to bring Craig Hartsburg with me, and I'd like you to come on our staff and, and be kind of the technical guy. Um, and, and, uh, I thought for me, uh, seeing what the NHL was about was going to be a good experience. And it was, it was an unbelievable eye opener for me. Um, and it, it kind of, uh, got me accustomed to what life in the NHL was like. 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a great time for the Flyers. <laughs> I mean, uh, those three years in the early 90s was part of the real rebuild. Um, but you were there when, uh, when Eric got here. Um, what, what do you remember of, uh, of Lindros in, in that first year, year and a half, when he was uh, 19 years old and taking the NHL by storm? Well, it was my last year. Um, and that summer before, during the draft, when we made the trade for Eric, we had finished my second year there on a big run at the end, and we had a young team. And then when we made the trade for Eric, we kind of decimated our roster to get an elite player. And when Eric came on board, I had never seen the phenomena or experienced anything like that in my life because there was so much protection that, that we needed for Eric, and he was almost bigger than the game. Um, and it was my first experience at, at, at working with a superstar, somebody that was at an elite level, um, and just the, the, the response in every city we went to and the protection that he needed and the, the media event, or in some cases, circus that it created. Um, it was unbelievable. I, I always said it was, uh, it was like uh, traveling with the Rolling Stones because it was such a media extravaganza wherever Eric went, and it was hard on him. And I thought he did a great job in handling it, but it was really, really difficult. And uh, I had reached a stage where, um, uh, you know, in the three years, we transitioned so many players through the organization at that time that we really never knew what our hockey club was. And, and I felt a little bit sorry for Eric because we really had to cut into our hockey team uh, to get Eric. And obviously, he was the building block for the future of the Flyers. But, but from a coaching perspective, it was hard on us because we had built this program after year two that looked like it was sustainable. And then to get a player like Eric, who was a once-in-a-lifetime hockey player, uh, we had to do what we had to do. And that was we lost a lot of good players. From, from there, um, you move on to Kalamazoo, which was uh, a Stars affiliate in the IHL. That was back before uh, every team had an AHL affiliate. There were multiple uh, minor leagues, and, and the Stars affiliate was in Kalamazoo and eventually the Michigan K-Wings. And you were there for three years. Um, uh, you had a couple of uh, former, for, uh, former flyers on that group too. I mean, Derek Smith, Trent Klatt, um, Reed Simpson, Mark Peterson, Peter Zezel. Um, but really, I, I guess that's kind of where – you really made your bones to become an NHL caliber coach because that leads into your tenure with Dallas, right? Uh, correct. That, that was the best experience for me from a pure coaching standpoint. Junior hockey is a 24 hour a day job because you're babysitting and you've got accountability from school to billets to plan to everything. In, in, in Kalamazoo, it was my first experience at pure coaching. And I, I, I really enjoyed my time there. We, we were in a league which was, uh, there was a lot of high budget teams and, and we were on the lower side of the budget, but we had all a lot of really good young players. So we had players like Yuri Lettinen was there for a little while, Mapachuk was there. Uh, we, we fed a lot of players into the Dallas Stars. And it was a great experience for me from a pure coaching standpoint because you weren't babysitting the players. Uh, there was no media responsibilities per se. It was uh, pure coaching, and you could spend all day at the rink or you could spend all day with the players working on specific time 
uh, things. There was no time constraints on anything. So for me, from a coaching perspective, that was the purest form for me. Yeah, and you, you mentioned a couple of those guys. You even had, I think you had Langenbrunner down there in Kalamazoo and even Sador, Grant Marshall. I mean, I think those guys all kind of, they were all part of your Stanley Cup team eventually five years later, um, but they all kind of started with that, with that uh, Kalamazoo team, which is, which is really kind of interesting. Um, and then you get to Dallas, and uh, you know, I guess the first season was a, a half season, but then after that uh, you really had uh, your first playoff run in 96, 97, I think. Um, and then the first season I really remember taking notice of you guys uh, was the year before you guys won the cup it was 97, 98. And you went to the conference final against Detroit um, and lost in six games, but that, that Red Wings team was on a mission, right? I mean, they were on a, a mission to repeat, but you know, you really started to put together a team there because when you look at the Stanley cup team hitch it, teams aren't built like that anymore. Like if I, if I start rattling off names from that Dallas Stars 99 Stanley Cup team, you know, Madonna, Hull, Neuendijk, Lettinen, Zubov, Sador, Langenbrunner, I mean, Verbeek, Hatcher, I mean, Carboneau. I mean, you guys had all these players leading up to uh, that Stanley Cup team. I guess the only thing that you didn't have in 97, 98 that, that you had when you won the Cup was Eddie Belfour. How big of a difference was goaltending for you from one season to the next to get you over the top? Well, I think it was the fir my first experience of how important a goaltender is. And, um, we, we, we made it, when I went there in January 96, Bob made the decision because he told me the first night I, I, he said, he said to me, the first night I got there, he said, listen. It's Bob Ganey, by the way, right? Yeah, yeah. Bob Ganey. Yeah. Bob said, in 10 days, this team is not going to look like the one you have on the ice tonight. I'm going to tear it down and we can rebuild quickly. We've got a great young core here. We're going to bring in three or four guys that you had, put them on the hockey club, and we can rebuild this quickly because we, we went from last to first right away. And, and we did it with a bunch of young guys. So if you look at the core of the group, there was a bunch of young guys that were growing together. But the one element we had was the goaltending was so strong in the National Hockey League, and there were dominant goalies at that time. You know, Hasek being one of them, Patrick Waugh, and – they were dominant goalies, intimidating goalies. And, and Belfour, when he made the decision, he, he went from Chicago to San Jose and then came and, and he became available at the end of that season as a free agent. And when he picked us, we couldn't believe it. And then I saw firsthand how much a goaltender can, can make a difference to a hockey club. There were times in Eddie's run when I was there, that he won series by himself. He won big games. He beat great goaltenders head-to-head. -head. But I saw the difference that an elite goalie can make in, in what we saw in Dallas. And he, he was a guy that pushed us into another level. Because if you look at things in the West, there were three teams beating up at each other. There was us, Detroit, and Colorado. Detroit couldn't beat Colorado, and Colorado couldn't beat us, and we couldn't beat Detroit. So the matchups were really important, and the difference makers had to be the goaltender, and, and Eddie was a difference maker for us. Yeah, you know, and I went back and, you know, just kind of, you know, looked back at some of those games, and I look at, I mean, that Colorado series, and well, both of your conference finals, both in 99 and 2000 against Colorado were, you know, just incredible series, but I look at the one in 99, you're down 3-2 in the series. You go into Colorado for, for game six, and you're down one nothing after one period. And, it, you know, you guys come back and win. I mean, Langenbrunner has the two goals. 
uh, Lettinen ties, but Lagenberger has the two goals. But Belfour in the second and third period in that game six in Colorado was as good as a, you know, two periods as you can see a goalie play against the, ta- the talent that was on that Colorado team. And it goes to show just what kind of difference you talk about winning games and stealing games, it's doing it against an elite team that was a real Stanley cup caliber opponent. Oh, they, they were, they were powerful. They were deep and they were fast and they, they were kind of the prototypical team that you see now. They played a style that's more common now. They were wide open. They had attacking defensemen. They had four up on every rush. Uh, they, they were really an aggressive team, and they were dynamic offensively. And, and we knew if we were going to win, we had to keep this thing low scoring, and we had to play close to the best. You know, they, they, they were four lines deep. Um, they, had a, they had set themselves up for a long, long run. Uh, and. And we knew that Eddie was going to have to outplay Patrick if we were going to win the series. But we also knew that we were going to have to negate key players. And it was pick your poison. It was either which line do you want to check, Sackick's line or Forsberg's line. And, and you, the, you are always at a disadvantage when you played Colorado. And, and you're right. Belfort was the difference in the series. Um, I, it, it Game five was a disaster in our rink. I think we lost seven or eight five, and mm-hmm. they they wiped us right out. They 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 took over, and we had to come with a different mindset in game six. And that that of all those games that I watch, Anthony, that's the one game I watch back because um, we we did everything we could in that game to play the game the right way to win that game. And you know we we played a great game in game seven. Colorado was a little bit deflated, but but we took a lot of body blows early in the game, in game six, and came back and won it later on as, uh, as the game wore on. And, and it's interesting. You talk about, you know, you knew you had to play a defensive style hitch at that point uh, to really sh- slow them down. And, and that was something that, you know, obviously New Jersey kind of brought the defensive mindset into the, into the NHL a couple years sooner, right, in 95, coming out of the lockout. Um, but it was still there was still an element of that open style, and you, know, you talk about Colorado playing that way. Did you almost kind of look at that and say, all right, now you got to the Stanley Cup final and you're playing against Buffalo, that that was going to be a system that was going to just work? And because when you really go back and look at those games against Buffalo, as great as Hashik was, for the most part, until the last game that went triple overtime, they couldn't get shots on you guys. I think you held them to 12 shots one game. You know how that changed was I, when I came there in 96, I brought we, – we played in, we played the Edmonton Oilers system in, in Kalamazoo, and that was a full-court press, 2-1-2, very, very aggressive, pinching defensemen, activation of defensemen. We played the way the Oilers played because that's who I grew up watching, and I really believed in that system. And when I brought it in, in 96 in, in, in January to Dallas, I put that system in place and it was a disaster. <laughs> it, it didn't work. And then the coaches, Rick Wilson and Doug Jarvis and I, we spent six weeks after that. Rick and Doug had their kids still in school. And we, we sat uh, and met every day after the season was over. We didn't make the playoffs. We weren't close to a playoff team. And they convinced me to change. And they, they said, look, your system works, but you have to have the certain personnel. And it was a real eye-opener and a lesson for me, Anthony, because they said, you have to find a way to fit the personnel to your system. And you're, the, the personnel that we have on our team can't play this way. We don't have the foot speed. 
and we don't have the activation by the defenseman. You have to find a more conservative way to play, and we have to become a counterattack team for us to win hockey games. And they convinced me to change. And the system that we played was the old way Montreal used to play when, when, when Doug was there and Bob Ganey was there. And they convinced me to adapt to that system, which I carried for a long time uh, with me. And so we played the old Montreal way. And that's why we were able to change so quickly because we became, uh, our whole mindset was checking. Our whole mindset was counterattacking. Was ho our whole mindset was a thousand cuts. We felt like if we just kept putting you in bad spots with the puck, that we could get it turned over. And we were a really smart team. And we felt we could counterattack you to death. And the red line was able was used as an advantage because the red line in the game was used as a checking advantage for us. And that's why we adapted. And then we changed that system. And the whole time we were in Dallas, we played that way. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, we, everyone knows you know, the, the infamous goal that Brett Hall scores to win the, the cup. Um, I, I guess that I have to ask you now, if looking back at it, was it legit? Should it have counted? What do you think? With the rule at the time, obviously there was no interference, but the rule at the time was, you know, you couldn't have your skates in the, in the crease. And do you look at the replay? It looks like, yeah, it might've happened. Well, you know, we were given a, we were given a memorandum with about 10 games left in the regular season that there was going to be an update on that rule. And that was that, that your foot could be in the crease if the puck was in there and, and you, 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 you couldn't be standing in the crease in advance of it, but if, if there was activity, you could be in there with your feet. So we all knew that that rule was changed. It was a silly rule. And I, I always tell people this, we got killed on that rule in game one. We could have won game one going away, but we had three goals disallowed because our foot was in the crease that had nothing to do with the play. We're on the other side of the net and we were, we ended up losing game one in overtime and we had three goals disallowed in that game. So for me, it was justification, but everybody knew that there was a change in that rule before the end of the regular season. And it's interesting because that game and that rule and that goal had nobody, nobody forgets which two teams were involved in the 99 playoffs. Like a lot of times you forget the losing team in the Stanley cup playoffs, but nobody forgets in 99, it was Buffalo and Dallas. So to yeah. me, from an acknowledgement standpoint for both teams, it's probably good. <laughs> now, the, now, the next year, you guys, you know, try to do something that's it, – it, so it's incredibly hard to win the Stanley Cup once, right? But then you try to – you know, you got back to the final to try and win it a second time um, with that same group. Uh, this time you get New Jersey in, uh, in the final. Um, you know, is it a situation where you just – you feel like the team just kind of ran out of gas – going into that point because you'd played so long the season before you had another epic conference final against Colorado. We got, you know, new and getting the overtime game winner in game five. And you guys have to hang on in a crazy game seven where the, where they kept firing shots at Belfort in the third period there. And, and now, now you're going against a, a team that plays a very similar style to the way you play and just kind of grind you a little bit. Is that, you think where it, it kind of the, the repeat fall, fell apart there against Dallas, I mean, against uh, New Jersey. Well, I thought, I thought to be honest with you, that, that two, the 2000 season was the greatest performance by a goalie I've ever seen in my life. Eddie, 
we were wearing down. Our, our We had an older team. We were wearing down, and Belfort refused to let us lose. And he almost pulled it off against New Jersey, too, because New Jersey was as deep as any team in the National Hockey League. They had made trades at the end of the year in getting McGilney uh, and Makaroff on the back end. And they were so deep that, um, you know, we had a difficult time, but Eddie wouldn't, wouldn't allow us to lose. And, and who knows what would happen if, 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 you know, we hit three posts in the, in the overtime game in game six, who knows what would have happened. But that, second half of that season was all about Eddie. Eddie pulled off some amazing games to keep us in the hunt because we were, we were running on fumes. A lot of guys were tired at the end of that season. A lot of guys had major surgery. A lot of guys held off surgeries because there was such a short window between the year we won and then starting up again. And a lot of guys ended up with major surgeries after that season, but a lot of guys were tired. And it was one of the most incredible goaltending uh, displays I've ever seen in my life. That's yeah. what kept going. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, what I, that's what I remember, Hitch. It was all Belfour. Yeah, and again, we, we avoided Detroit. We, <laughs> we got Colorado before we, we uh, you know, Detroit was out, and we got Colorado because even during the regular season, we had a real hard time in beating Detroit. Yeah. Um, then, so your time in Detroit, I mean, uh, in Dallas – comes to a relatively quick end the next season. Um, you're still above 500, but there was a lot of, I, I guess, turmoil in, in, in amongst the team. And, you know, you, you end up getting let go. And then you come to Philadelphia. And this is where, you know, obviously a lot of our fans are going to remember your time here. And you, you basically were coming into a team that was similar in the sense that it was a veteran squad that the Flyers had at that point. And, you know, they're coming off of the whole, uh, you know, Lindros divorce. Um, and they try trying to kind of you know figure it out and get things back on track and be a, a Stanley Cup contender, and you come in right away and kind of you know get the team going. Was this the that Montreal system that you talked about? Is that what you brought with you to Philadelphia? Did it work with the Flyers as well? Yes, in, in some ways, but you know we, there was a different dynamic on the back end. There was more mobility on the back end and stuff like that. But we brought in a similar, more we we call it checking for chances. We 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 had we had a really captive audience with the Flyers. We had a lot of players that I knew personally. Uh, we had a lot of guys that were really hungry to win. Uh, I would say coaching the buy-in in Philadelphia was the easiest buy-in that I've ever had as a coach. It was it was easy and it happened. There was a lot of really good teams in the East at that time, but it was the easiest buy-in and. and and to be honest with you, the reason the buy-in was easy was because of the leadership. I had a group there, you know, starting with, with Keith, with Primo, but there was a group there of leaders and veteran players that were really quick to buy in, and it, it made my job really easy. And I had a lot of guys that just wanted to play hockey, and they wanted to win, and they were hungry to win. And... It was the easiest time I've ever had at selling a group and getting them to buy in that quickly. Yeah, and your, your first playoff with the Flyers uh, in 03 uh, was an unbelievable seven-game series with Toronto. Uh, three of those games go multiple overtimes. Uh, Recky wins game four in triple overtime in Toronto. I remember being at that game. That was a crazy game. Um, I think his wife had just given birth that night or something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, 
that that Toronto team, and you know, you got to play them again the next season in the in the second round. Um, you want to talk about a team that was probably most evenly matched or, or very similar to the Flyers? I think it was probably that Toronto team. Is that fair to say the way you guys played against each other? Yeah, but you know what? There was a lot of loaded teams. Like there were teams that were just loaded in the East. You know, you had um, you had the haves and you had the have-nots, and we were one of the haves. And and you had. Toronto was terrific. New Jersey was terrific. You had so many good teams, uh, so many deep teams that um, you, you had the haves and the have-nots. And, and there was four or five teams that every year could win the East. And you could see that uh, in playing. You know, uh, Tampa Bay was powerful and strong. And you had, you had so many great hockey clubs there that every series – felt like, and I said this to the coaches, every series felt like it went on for three months because the games were so difficult. Ottawa was emerging as a powerhouse, and you had so many deep, strong teams that to get through and get even play in the West was a big challenge. And and I, I've said this before, um, the team that we lost in game seven – and to Tampa with was the deepest, the best team, and was playing the best hockey of any team I've coached in the National Hockey League. No team was playing as good as we were playing, and then it all blew up with the injuries on the back end. But but we were rolling going into the playoffs. We were playing at times even perfect hockey, and that's the one group of players, Anthony, to be honest with you, that I feel terrible for because. I, I honestly felt with 20 games left in the season um, that nobody was going to beat us. There was nobody that could beat us, and the only thing that was going to hurt us was, was injuries, and then we lost all those guys in that Toronto series. Yeah, and, and not, only, not only that, I mean, it was so bad. I remember against Tampa, you had Sammy Kapanen playing defense because that's how depleted the, the blue line was. You didn't really have any other options, right? Not only playing defense, he's playing 24 minutes a night. And, <laughs> and we were one we, – we needed two days. We were two days away from getting four players back. And we, we were in really a tough spot because we'd lost so many defensemen. Um, and we were nine deep. When we started the playoffs, we were nine deep. And Clarkie had made a couple of great trades, like getting Danny Markoff in was good, getting Ragnarsson in. Um, we, we, uh, we had unbelievable group of players and committed group. And I, 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 I told people uh, quietly that I just didn't think if we stayed healthy that anybody was going to beat us. And, and then it happened. You know, it seemed like every game we would lose a player. And it started early in the playoffs. And then when we're in that Toronto series, and I, I got vol- I'm asking for volunteers to play defense <laughs> after the third game, I knew we were in a little bit of a quagmire. Yeah, uh, I want to I talk about that season a little bit. Um, earlier in the season, one of my, one of the fa- my favorite games, regular season games that I ever covered, just because of the experience that I had afterwards. It was it was fun on the ice, but then afterwards was crazy too. Uh, was the the brawl with Ottawa? Can you kind of <laughs> and I see you, you laugh at it as soon as I bring it up, but can you can you kind of take us through? The, the, a little bit of the history. I mean, we know what happened with the, with the recce injury, but um, take us through what led into that. And did you kind of expect that that was going to happen? And did the officials kind of lose control too, too quickly with that game and, 
it was just such, it's so memorable. Like I, I like watching it even today, like just to look, look back on it. <laughs> well, it started with, with the hit on Recky yeah. and, and uh, you know, the game was over uh, and then Mark got hurt and, and we were really upset about that. And then one of the coaches leaned in on me and he said, they're too, they got two less on their bench than you do. So I made the decision to run his bench off. And I said, I'm going to run him down to zero. And, you know, it's nothing that you can do now or you would even think about doing, but probably the Western Hockey League came out in me and I saw he had two less players. So I said, I'm going to have him play with zero players. And, and so we made the decision that this wasn't going to happen again. And, um, you know, that's what started it. And, and, and it was me being upset with what happened to Mark and, and probably reacting emotionally, but we also knew he had two less players and we thought, you know, why not now? <laughs> and then it was great. Like afterwards, I mean, Clarkie went down there, he starts yelling, calling him out, trying to get Jacques to come out of the locker room. And I know you were chirping with him a little bit on the bench. He had Brashear was kicked out of the game and comes back down the tunnel, ready to try and go back on the ice. I mean, it was just, it was just such a great experience that was that was hockey when it was when it was a lot more fun. I, I, I hate to say it that way, Hitch, but it, it just you, you, I kind of miss that, and I think a lot of people kind of miss that kind of uh, uh, energy, I should say, uh, in a hockey game. Well, you had so many teams in the East at that time because there was a three or four year window there where there were so many good teams, but there was a real hate for organizations. You know, you didn't like organizations. You you had no friends on the other team. You didn't like them. There was no camaraderie before, during, after, whatever, there was an anger and a hate for a lot of organizations. And, and you, it's because the teams were good. There was a lot of good teams at that time. And we, we didn't like a lot of teams and a lot of teams didn't like us. And, uh, and we had an, a very abrasive style that we played and, um, and teams didn't like that at all either. So there was a, when the Flyers were coming to town, there was a real, animosity in a lot of cities and it was an eye-opener for me because it was my first experience coaching where it was city versus city it just wasn't team it was New York versus Philadelphia it was Montreal versus Philadelphia there were city versus city rivalries and it was a new experience for me and and I think that's why I loved it so much because you once you were with the Philadelphia Flyers and you were part of that organization, you were really proud to be a Flyer. Um, Robert Esch was not an elite goaltender by any stretch of the imagination, but in that season, um, he competed probably harder than, than almost anybody. He just battled for you. Can, you. can you just talk a little bit about the kind of guy that he was? I mean, especially come, you come off of Monic the previous season, right? And then the way that that kind of ended with him shouting at you on the bench uh, in the playoffs against Ottawa the previous year. And to, to have Esch come in and just kind of be a guy that everyone liked and everyone rallied around. Well, he, first, he, Robert's a great guy. But secondly, he's a great athlete. He was, he was really a, he was, he was a natural athlete. He, he had tremendous athletic skills. And, and we needed to refine his technique. And he needed to calm down in the net. And we, we convinced him over time that, that he could play deeper in the net and be calmer and still you know, make the saves. And once he calmed down, 
And once he played deeper in the net, I thought his whole game changed. I thought he just, he became, he looked like a big goalie at that time. Before he was very aggressive and he was, he was, he opened himself up to a lot of backdoor goals and stuff like that. But when he calmed down and played deeper in the net, you could just see how good he was. Um, and quite frankly, to get out of the East, we needed a goalie to be a big story. And, and like I said, I think going into those playoffs, there were six teams that thought they could win in, the, in that little two or three year window there. And we were one of the six. So we knew we needed a upgrade and goal. Eshi came out of nowhere, but, but once he was sold on the technique change that he had to make, he really became a good goalie. Yeah. Going into that Tampa series, um, it was another fun element of that series was you talk about the rivalry kind of thing between city and city, but you and you and torts had a lot of fun uh, going back and forth at each other in, in, in that playoff. Um, and you did it again, I think uh, in 06 against Buffalo with Lindy. Uh, was that something that you just did to try and take the, take the pressure off the players to kind of draw attention to, to you a little bit more so, so that, you know, we as the media were focusing on the stuff you were saying and not really focusing on the players and just letting them concentrate on playing hockey. Yeah. I, I had people tell me that at their times you got to do that stuff. I, I, that was a learned skill. Um, you know, you, you don't do it much, very much anymore. It's not part of it, but it was at that time, it was do anything you can to get the focus away from playing because the stress and pressure on the players was so high. Anything that you can provide to be a distraction. And I learned that from experienced people. And a lot of guys that, uh, you know, that I'd been through with between Ganey and, and watching Glenn Sather, uh, you know, do go through their due process and stuff like that. I, it, it was a learned skill. So anytime you could draw it away from the players and get it off of them, um, you know, do whatever you could at that time. And, and you know what? It became really personal. And it became because uh, you were so passionate about your team. And it was very much a – it's a different era now. But before, it was us versus them. And so you wanted to get your players hunkered down. And it was trying to find a cause all the time. And so – the combination of the level of emotion that was involved there and, and then the firecrackers that, that John and Lindy and I were, you know, it, it just became, I'm sure it became fun for you meeting guys, but <laughs> it was also us just trying to provide a distraction for our team. So, but was it fun for you too, to, to do that kind of stuff? Or was it, was it just brought on by the emotion of trying, you know, trying to distract, uh, distract us a little bit? Well, I always found playoffs to be fun. I, I found that, that, you know, in a seven-game series, the best team always wins. And I always found that I always took pride in my team was the best team. And I, like I said, that the year that we lost to Tampa, I, 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 I honestly felt that nobody was ever going to beat us. I, I, you know, we had got Alex Zamnoff in, and, and our team was just so deep and so strong that, and playing so well. Um, I'd never seen a group want to play for each other like that team did. And I felt terrible for what happened. You know, I, I, I know injuries are a part of the game and you don't want to make an excuse, but that was one of those things that was really unfair to our team. And, and I, I felt terrible for the guys because I knew a lot of guys 
felt like this was their best opportunity ever to win a cup. Yeah, and there were guys trying to will that team to win, even in against Tampa, when you guys had no defense. You, know, you look at Primo in that series was just – I mean, it's a shame because, I mean, really, I mean, he, had, he was playing through concussions, as we found out later. He only played nine more games in his career, and then that was it. But, I mean, that was, you know, that was Keith just kind of taking that warrior mentality to just a, an ultimate level, right? Well, I think what you saw in Philadelphia was the emergence of a leader. Yeah. I, I thought – you know, he, he, I asked him to change the way he was playing. I asked him to, to move into a checking role. He did it. He, he embraced it, and the team started to win, and he was making the biggest sacrifices for the group as the captain. Uh, and he bought into that, and it, our whole mindset of our team changed. It opened up ice for other people. And, and Keith, Keith had to do a lot of the heavy lifting of playing against the other team's top players, and he did a great job. And who knows – if he stays healthy, how much longer our run could have been. But, but we, when he went down the next season, we really missed him. Like when, when he wasn't able to play, we really missed his leadership. Well, I was going to ask you about that 05-06 team because that comes out of the lockout. And there's some changes made. Obviously, you know, there's no more JR. Uh, you, bring, but you get Forsberg. You have an opportunity to coach one of the, you know, all-time greats there in, in Peter. Um, you bring in Hatcher and Rathji to try and solidify the back end. But I think, you know, uh, Rathji had some injuries that he was trying to play through. And, and the game was starting to change a little bit. Some rules had changed. So even though the team was was a good team in 05-06, by the time you get to the playoffs and you're, and you're matched up against, you know, small and fast Buffalo, it probably wasn't you know, the most ideal situation for the, for the Flyers at that point. You know what, Anthony, um, I've, I've always told people this, they had changed their rules and it came back and, and we had built a team that was a little bit different, but in game 66, we're in Detroit and we're, we're playing Detroit for first overall record in the whole national hockey. League. And then it happened again. And, and then when I left, I told Terry Murray when I left, and, and I, I said, Merck, this can't be happening to us again because we lost three defensemen. Uh, Rathji went down, Pitkin went down, and somebody else went down, I think Desjardins. And we lost him again for long term. And, and if you look at our record from game 66 on, we played 500 hockey. And we were, we were struggling to just keep up again. Uh, and, and, and I said to Murph, this can't be happening to us because we, we'd gone conference final lockout and then start up again. And, and Detroit beat us in that game, but we were, we were, we were the team with the two best records in the national hockey league and playing at it again. And, and then, you know, I, I guess over time, when you look at it, some of the guys that got hurt, they were fragile. They were banged up already and they were fragile guys and they, they continued to be hurt for the rest of their careers. But, um, Again, that team that was supposedly not designed post-lockout was still playing as good as anybody in the National League. I want to stop there for just a second before we move on to you leaving Philadelphia and going on the rest of your career. And I want to dive into something that kind of relates into today's game. Um, I do remember one of the things that that you were great with with us as the members of the media was, you know, you wanted us to know the sport, right? So you used to invite us into your office and you would show us on some video and you would say, you know, here's the system, here's how we want to play. And this is what we're looking to do. And I can remember you telling us then uh, about how important you used to say the puck is the game, Anthony, the puck is the game. Um, And so that's really about puck possession. Today's game 
there's so much that is tied into the analytics of hockey. And I know you're kind of an old school coach, but I wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on this and see, you know, where do you think, how do you think analytics has affected the game? And is everything that we're seeing analytically good for the sport or are we sometimes going too far with it? Well, I think we're way overboard with analytics. I, I think analytics is great if you're using it specifically to help your team win. I think analytics, the problem for me with analytics is if you do very little on either side of the puck, you end up with a positive report card. And I, that's, that's not what you want in your hockey players. And to me, that's the problem with analytics is it hides the players who don't get much done. And to me, uh, I use analytics and I use it deeply, but I only use analytics that's specific to what I need to win the hockey game. And I only want to see the analytics that has a direct impact. And I, I put a program together four years ago, that, an analytical study uh, that's specific to what our team needs. What, where do we need to win the game in this analytics to win the game overall? And uh, that's the analytics that I follow. So instead of 40 points, I have eight points. And those are the analytics that I want specific to help my team. And I base it all on percentages. So I worked with a company when I was in St. Louis. And he put a program together for me that says if I win this part of the game uh, in the hockey game, that 90% of the time I'm going to win. And those are the analytics that I'm focused on. So very detailed, very specific. And then I sell that back to the players. If we do these things well, this is what's going to help us win games overall. And I think it has its purpose, but for me, the general information and all the, all the numbers that come out don't do you any good because it hides the players that do nothing. What I want from analytics is I want to know what do I need to do well analytically wise to help me win the game 90% of the time. And, and is it fair to say that some of these existed back in your time in Philadelphia, just maybe not in the way that that it's out there publicly like you guys internally probably looked at a lot of these things involving puck possession and and you know getting shots off from high percentage areas and things like that I mean you guys used to track that internally it might not have been public knowledge but it certainly existed back then right yeah but we got it from universities so okay. it, it was heavily it was heavily uh involved in university studies and basically the study was how to get the puck back quick and so there were I put those programs in place with the Flyers on these are the things that we need to do to get the puck back quick. We want the puck, and we're not going to always have it, but how do we get it back quick, and then what do we got to do to keep it? And I still keep those stats, and that's the game. The game is still the puck. You need to have it, but how, how can you put it in places to get it back? How can you put it in places that are safe for the guy coming on the ice? All those things really matter, and to me, protecting the puck, and making sure that you've got more time with it is going to allow you to win more games. And I got those uh, really in the early 2000s from studies that were done at the university level. And we had learned it in symposiums. When we went in summer symposiums, we learned how to, how to provide those analytics. And then I brought them back in the NHL. It started in my last two years in Dallas. And then I brought it forward into Philadelphia and carried it on. 
Yeah. Um, I, I keep been, I've been telling that story for, for a long time about how this was something that, that used to exist when you were coaching in Philly. And I remember you telling us about it. Um, and it just kind of gets brushed off like, no, 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 this is a relatively new, you know, newer thing. I'm like, I, I don't think so. I think this has been around for a while. Um, no. Go ahead. Uh, but uh, so that, let's get back to the, the going through the history here. So after 05, 06, obviously that, that leads to the, the big um, firing. You know, you get fired and Clarky resigns. Um, but I do recall you, we were down in Tampa, and that was after the big blowout loss in Buffalo was part of that trip. And you kind of saw this coming. Like you knew what was coming. And you called us in, and we had a little powwow with the, uh, the traveling beat guys. Um, and, you know, you basically let us know, like, hey, you know, we have, we don't have much time left here. This is, this is, this is coming. How soon did you know? Did you know going into the season that it was tenuous or did, did it really just hit you four games into the season that five games into the season that, uh Oh, this is not good. No, I knew in the summer. Okay. I, I knew way before the season started. And the reason for that is that you're tied to the general manager. And I knew that Clarkie, um, uh, I knew Clarkie was burning out. I, I knew that, He'd been at it so long that I was tied to Clarkie. And my loyalty, as loyal as I was to the Flyers, I was loyal to Bob Clark. And I knew if Clarkie was going to go, I was going to go. And my feeling was when I looked at Bob and I looked at, at – he, he looked – we both looked a little worn down. We'd gone on – we'd been in a lot of hard playoff series together, and we both looked a little worn down. And I knew that – it wasn't going to last. And I knew if Clarkey was going to, or was thinking about resigning that I wouldn't last. And in fairness to Homer coming in, he had to bring his own guy in. Like it, it was different then when you made the change at general manager, you brought your own guy with you and it's different now. Now sometimes you get an evaluation process to evaluate the coach. But in those days, if the general manager was going, the coach went with him and, and I knew he was, I knew Clarkie was thinking about it. I could see it in his mind. I could see the way he was processing things. And I, I, I knew it was going to be quick. Um, from there, your next step was Columbus. Um, not, not your most successful uh, tenure, but uh, there's some interesting things in Columbus. I mean, you, you ended up, <laughs> there were so many guys who played there uh, that were, that, made their way, you know, traveled through Philadelphia. I'm just going to run off through a list of names. Nick Zherdev, Ole Christian Tollefson, Jody Shelley, Brian Boucher even played a handful of games for you in Columbus. Um, Chris Gratton, Mike York. Uh, and then, of course, R.J. Umberger went there. Steve Mason was there. Uh, but the guy I really want to ask you about is you got to coach 19-year-old Jake Voracek. What was Jake like as when he first came into the league? Um, and I, cause I know how you are sometimes with these younger players too. So what was, what was coaching Jake like back then? Well, first of all, with, with Columbus, it was the best experience I've ever had in my life. Really? It was, the, it was for, for sure. I loved the city. I, I, I loved the people in the city. It was a very unique, I'd never been in a city that had culture and then a big university like that. It felt like a small city and I've never coached a team that bought in like the one that, that t- for us just to get in the playoffs, the buy-in was unbelievable because we spent 80% of the time without the puck. We didn't have the puck. <laughs> and you could see the makings with Rick Nash and guys like Broussard and especially Jake. You could see it emerging. And I always told Jake, 
he came in as a free spirit. He came in as a gifted offensive player uh, that had really strong dynamics. And I said, I'm going to be hard on you. And the reason is because I believe you got something special here. And I said, if you're willing to buy into what I'm selling, you can have a long, long career because you can become more than just a one-dimensional offensive player. You have the ability with your vision and your hockey sense and your smarts to be a special player. And he's turned out to be that type of player. And he's, he's a player that until his last game is played, he's still going to have an effective player because be an effective player because he can play on both sides of the puck. He's intelligent on both sides of the puck. He's creative with it and he's very disciplined without it. And to me, um, he's a perfect case of a young guy that bought in quickly because uh, he changed uh, immediately and uh, became a very dependable player. And uh, I, I love him. I, I, I know we have a very unique relationship and a tremendous friendship. We look each other up every time uh, we're in each other's city. Um, and and I, I really, uh, he to me was a guy, there's a perfect example of a person that is willing to change immediately. There, the buy-in was immediate, the change was immediate, and his game took off to another level as a complete player immediately. And, and uh, I know that I have, he knows that I have a great respect for him and I think the feeling is mutual on his side too. Yeah, it's interesting, it's funny. You talk to a lot of guys who you know, went on to longer careers who you had as a young player. And they all said at the time they hated you. They couldn't stand playing for you. But then looking back, they all have told me, you know what? The, Hitch was the reason why I've, I'm still playing hockey today. I'll give you some names. Patrick Sharp said that. Um, Justin Williams said that. Uh, uh, I remember Gagne said it at his, uh, uh, when he was uh, retiring from the NHL. He said it. Uh, Jeff Carter said it. Um, these guys all had an opportunity to play for you at, as teenagers or, or very young players. And I guess your style was going to be, you know, be hard on them, but it was, it was done for a reason because you saw that they were going to all become lengthy NHL players who were going to be good if they, if they bought into, you know, playing the right way. Well, I think for me, Anthony, you know, the one thing I look back on it is probably, which I do more, I did more of now that the last couple of places I've coached is that I was demanding to the players that you talked about, they're great players, but I was demanding of them. I probably didn't explain enough about and that's the transition that you're in now you've got to take them to the end game if you want them to buy in I probably didn't take them to the end game enough in other words how much I believed in them but but when I saw those players and the names you mentioned I, I really believe they had something special and and if I could bring it out in them they could have long careers and be very productive and sometimes as a coach you're in that transition where you're explaining what to do and how to do it but then you got to explain why you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I probably didn't spend enough time on the why and the why got found out later maybe, but even though I was hard on them, they did it and they did it well and they became trusted, really, really good players. I think the one guy for me is um, I wished I would have spent, I wished Justin Williams would have been with me longer because we had a need at that time when we traded Justin and um, 
Uh, we needed a top three defenseman, which we got. But I wished I would have had Justin with me longer because I, I think the way he draws people in uh, could have made us good for a long, long time. But I, I hope I, – I think all those guys, I talk to them all the time. I've, I've had those guys in World Championships, Olympics, and that. And, and, you know, we've got great friendships. But I think the one thing that I look back on it that I could have done a better job of explaining was, was how much I believed in him and why I was doing this. And sometimes – as a coach, that's the one regret you have is that I didn't sell the last part enough, um, but I did. I do it, and I did it, and I still do it because I believe in the players so much. Um, jumping ahead to St. Louis, um, you had you had you won your uh, Jack Adams Award as NHL Coach of the Year in 2012. You were coached there parts of six seasons, were really successful with the Blues regular season. I mean that those teams were really good and just never seemed to be able to, to get over the hump. I think you went uh, twice past the first round, three times lost in the first round. I guess 16 was the year you went to the conference final, lost to San Jose. Um, Brian Elliott, who's with the Flyers now, was uh, you know one of your goaltenders while you were there. Um, hey, can, can you talk a little bit about that, the time in St. Louis and, and what, just, what was just the last bit that was missing? Because a lot, of, a lot of those guys that you coached and were part of the team that won the Stanley Cup with Chief last year. Yeah, and I, I, I think there were 17 or 18 guys left over. We, we had a great team. I, I think the, the, the thing we had was that we had the two elephants in the room in Los Angeles and Chicago. And it, was, it felt like it was back when I had Dallas and, and there was Colorado and Detroit. It felt like um, you knew someone was going to be – two teams were going to be disappointed because, you know, the, year, the two years we lost to Chicago, they won the Cup. The year we lost to Los Angeles, they, they won the Cup. Um, I just I felt like they they were deeper in key position positions than we were at that time, um, but that's the fine line. When you look at when you look at, um, at at some of those series, we played as well as we could play. We we played great hockey. The year that Los Angeles beat us out, we we played them, and we did a great job. We played really really well. Um, but Jonathan Quick was in goal, and then Crawford was in goal. And you, you end up with a lot of different things. But we were in the race. Um, but I think the team that you see now, a lot of coaches impacted the team that, that Craig's got now. And that is that you're seeing the maturity of a lot of those players, how long it takes. Because I had a lot of those players when they were really, really young, and they grew together as a group. And now you're seeing it, it uh, augment itself. But don't dismiss the fact that, that Doug made some great ads. The addition of O'Reilly, uh, the addition of, of Shen, those are major impact players that, that really have impacted that team in a very positive way. And, and to me, when you see those guys get added into your group, it, it really raises your enthusiasm to another level. But I had Alex Petrangelo when he's 21 years old. And now look at him. You know, he's got triplets. And he's yeah. – he's, He's, he's really grown up as a player. And so for me, um, I was at the start of that run, and it was nice to see Craig finish it off. Yeah. Um, now, you had said, and this is why I want to get into this, a couple more questions with you, Hitch, and we'll wrap it up. Um, you had said going into, your, into the 16-17 uh, season that that was going to be it for you, that you were going to retire. Um, you didn't get a chance to finish that season in St. Louis. Um, you were let go in the beginning of February. Uh, but then you came back. 
and spent one year in Dallas, um, uh, where current flyer Tyler Pitlick played for you. Um, but you retired at the end of that season. But then you came back again <laughs> to, to help out Edmonton for a year. It was kind of a tumultuous year with Edmonton. Um, are you done? Are, are, you, are you really retired now, or would you give it another, another go? Well, Anthony, you know what I, I found over time? I, 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 I'm going to miss coaching every day. I, I, I loved it. I love it. I, love, I, love, I think of myself as a coach. I want to be thought as a, as, a, as, a, as a good person and a good coach for the rest of my life. Um, in, the, in, the, in the Dallas and um, uh, the, uh, sorry, Edmonton teams, I was asked to go in and help. And so I did. And I don't want to apply for a job. And I, I don't think there's going to be a day goes by that I don't think I can coach. But after a while, you got to admit the grind gets to you, just like I'm sure it does you guys, the travel and everything. Mm -hmm. it's, not the, it's not the coaching. It's not the competition. I love it. I love the preparation. I love every aspect of it. But travel does get to be a grind. Travel does get to be hard. And, and I, I, I did that. I, I, the last two places I went to were with my heart. And, and I'll do it again. And I went in there to help friends. Um, and people that I really respect, and uh, I'd, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. But I also know that that what there's part of me now that thinks heart-wise I want to go, but head-wise, man, the grind uh, it it gets hard after a while. People don't realize you're taking a hundred flights a day or a year. I mean, um, there's days you wake up as you get going in this league. There's days you wake up, you got to open the door to look at what your room number. Like you can't remember where you woke up. You can't remember what city you're in. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that go on that, that end up catching up to you. So to me, uh, my heart would say I'd do it in a heartbeat, but my head says, don't touch it. The final question. I, I know how much um, being able to represent Canada has meant to you in your career. Um, you were uh, given the Order of Hockey in Canada uh, award at, in the uh, it was announced at the end of this, I guess it was in December, right? That they announced that. Um, you've got gold medals with the Olympics as an associate coach, I think was what, 02, uh, 02, uh, 02, 10 and 14 were your three golds there. Um, you've coached at world championships. Uh, you, co you were coached with uh, the 88 world junior team. Um, how much does that really mean to you? Um, you know, being, uh, being that Canada is, you know, hockey, hockey is Canada and that you're, that you get that uh, kind of honor from the, from you know, hockey Canada for, for your career. You know what? Uh, the honor is terrific, but for me, more than anything, those three teams that won the gold medals and, and, and the junior gold medal and everything, I think what the coming together of those groups is what I'm, I'll never forget. I, you know, all three groups had adversity, especially the one in O2. We were so banged up. Guys like Eiserman and Lemieux were on their last legs. And to see that group to come together and then, to me, the 14 team was just augmented from what happened in 2010. The group that came together in 2010 and met the challenge really just fed into the 14 group. I knew after two games in, in, in Sochi that we were going to win the gold medal in 14. But in 2010, it was up for grabs. A lot of good teams. I think the thing I'm proudest of is that we, we brought a lot of talented guys together and they played as one. And that's a very big challenge. And I was part of that staff that brought it together. So I'm proud of that. 
But you know what I'm proud of is, is that uh, I was able to do something in my life that I loved and I learned from my dad for a living. And I, I'll, I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. When I look back on things, um, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for getting a chance to coach for a living. The two regrets I have, Philadelphia is one of them. That team in Philadelphia before the lockout, we deserved to win it all. And we were that good, we were that strong, and there was nobody close to us. So I feel for those players, and I know that's competition. Uh, that's, that's the one. And then the second one for me is not winning a Stanley Cup with the Blues because we, were, we had good teams and we, were in, we, we had great teams that we had to get through. And so for Craig to follow through with that is a great feeling for me too. Great. Well, Hitch, I really appreciate you taking the hour to, to talk with us here today. This was a, it was great catching up with you. Uh, all the best to you uh, d- during this time. And ho- you know, maybe we'll see you at a rink sometime soon. Well, we won't be around him for a little while, but it was great being on with you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again, Hitch. Have a good one, my friend. Right, take care. There he was. Ken Hitchcock. If that man didn't make you smile at least 40 times during the interview, <laughs> I'm going to need you to take your fingers right now, take the index and middle finger, place it just under your jawbone on your neck, and I want you to feel for a pulse. Oh, you have a pulse. I hope you smiled, because uh, Ken Hitchcock, man, that was... That was really something. I, I listened to it. This is, <laughs> I shouldn't tell you. Well, it doesn't matter. I, I, was I know when you listened to it. Go ahead. When, when did I listen to it? It was either last night or, or this morning. It was this morning. But <laughs> I, I was listening to it, uh, one earbud in, getting ready to make breakfast for the family. And then I was like, you know what? I got to take a shower. I don't think I've showered in like three days. So I go up and I have a little speaker in the shower. So I'm scrub-a-dub-a-dub in my head. And I'm listening to Ken Hitchcock reminisce about his time as a coach. And then you guys got to the 0304 team. And I just kind of felt all this emotion rushing back. I was like, man, man, come on. And then after I got done crying in the shower by myself, uh, I, you know, I let, I let everything, I let the dust settle. And I said, you know what? I can still look back and smile at those times that were gone by. It's not the ultimate result, Anthony. It's, it's the process, it's the, it's the path, and it's the friends you made along the way. And that 0304 team, they're special. It was. Special group. It was. It was great to hear him talk. You know, to hear him say that he has two great regrets in, in his hockey career, and the two regrets were not winning with that team and not winning with the Blues team that Chief won with last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it tells you a lot. I mean, here's a guy who's won a Stanley Cup, who's won gold medals. Like I said, he's going to be in the, the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's, he's, every, he's one of the greatest coaches to ever coach in the sport. Um, to hear him say that, like that those were his two biggest regrets, it makes you, makes you feel a little bit more, a little bit something more for that team. And then he goes on to say, and we talked about how rough he was on young players, right? I mean, I brought him up. I brought up the names of the young guys that he – that he was tough on and for him to sit there and say, I wish I had more time with Justin Williams. I wish I had been more communicative with those young guys and make them really know how I felt about them. Mm-hmm. Like I was tough on them for a reason. And I wanted, I pushed them and wanted them to be a certain way, but I really liked the games that they, the, the way that they played the game and I was rooting for them. And to hear him say these things, like it's, it's almost like, wow, like he realizes now 
how what he the mistakes he made. We're talking about a Hall of Fame caliber coach here. The mistakes that he made as a coach over the course of his twenty plus year career in the NHL. I mean, to have him say that, you know, it's pretty awesome to hear. And then, and then, and then, um, what I had forgotten about when he was the assistant coach here in Philadelphia in the early nineties, I remember he was an assistant coach, but I forgot until he brought it up that the reason he was brought in is he was kind of like the, what they call the technical coach at that time. And basically it was, he was, he was kind of the, the analytics guy before there were analytics. Right. Mm-hmm. So like he was, that was, that was all his job was, was to, you know, look at things like that, look at chances, look at, you know, whatever, and find areas of the game that they needed to do well in. So when he mentioned that, it, you know, I it kind of put a thought into my head because I wasn't going to ask the question, but I, I put a thought into my head. Let me ask Kitch about analytics. And what'd you think about him talking about Using the university, with, I, I thought you, the idea of like having the universities put together the analytics report was interesting. Right. And that, cool. but that was, think about what year that was. That was nineties. That was in the nineties. And he, so he had it in Dallas, used it to win a Stanley cup and then brought it to Philadelphia where he had a team that should have won the Stanley cup. Yep. So it's pretty fascinating. And then he tells you what the most important parts of the game were. Mm-hmm. He said, we would sit there and say, okay, you know, when you do this, you win the game 90% of the time. Well, let's do that all the time. When you lose the puck, this is the best way to get it back or the, yeah. the easiest way to get it back. Yeah. So, it's I, mean, funny, that, I mean, how many times have we had the analytics conversation with coaches yeah. and, and executives on the show? And, and the, the same feedback has come back practically every time, yeah. which is there are useful analytics and then there are many that have gone uh, absolutely overboard. Again, mm-hmm. If you want to pray at the altar of super micro advanced stats because you think that that's the best way to analyze hockey, you can do that and you can have fun. You can have a ball. I do like, and and I think this is something I heard. It was, yes, it was on the right circuit Sanchez. It was Spike Eskin and Mike Levin. They had once said, I think it was Spike said, the only way that you should be able to have a conversation about an advanced stat is if you can explain what it is and how it's calculated. Otherwise, you don't get to make the argument. And what I think we find a lot of times on Twitter, especially as the season is roaring on, and a, there's a general consensus that's been come to about a player or about a player's impact, is somebody decides to go and try to put together a model to be the contrarian. And when you put things together, and quite honestly, it takes a bit of, of finagling of, of numbers and reading the formula and, and trying to put it all together. If you're just scrolling through on Twitter and you see a fancy graph with some really nice looking imagery and you go, well, you know, somebody put a lot of time into that. They must be right. It, it can be misleading. I mean, you can use math in, in any way for the most part to try to craft your own narrative or your own counter. Um, your own counter examples, your own counter anecdotes or whatever. Um, I thought what Hitch said in the interview was, was really poignant, which is, you know, advanced analytics in a way can, can make a player who doesn't do much look like a positive. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times when you, when you scour Twitter, especially Flyers Twitter, um, and, and even when I think back to like right before the season was paused and 
you know, it, I think it's kind of funny. There, there is a growing group of people who, who have uh, like the Church of Hague, right? And, and there are so many people that from an advanced stat uh, community say, well, you know, Hague sucks and he's useless. And then there are people who are traditional hockey fans who also don't think he's very good. But then you kind of look at it and you go, all right, well, you know, for, for what he is, as a sixth or seventh defenseman, like he's solid, he's fine. And, and like ultimately, you know, the pairings with him haven't been absolute garbage and he's not that expensive. So, and he's well, also I'm, not being played in a prominent role. He's not pl- being played as a top four defenseman. So you kind of make it, you kind of make it work, right? Well, Hitch also said, and he said the converse is true as well. It, it, it maybe makes people who do what the coach is asking them to do not look as good. Sure. So. Because if you're being employed in a, in a certain system or something that might be out of the player's comfort zone or something that doesn't, you know, pop the stats, pop off the page the way that somebody who you might think has a higher upside or is a more dynamic player or whatever makes them look bad, fine. Again, like there's the human element. There's the part that we can analyze, you know, in terms of how it appears the game is being executed, which, by the way, I think, you know, you pointed out really, really well that um, Hitch used to bring the media in to show them the system and say, this is how we want to play. This is what we are looking for. That's a really useful thing. And by the way, uh, I, I don't think AV did it this year. I know that there were a couple of times that you and I were working our other jobs uh, and he had some of the media in his office to chat. I don't think it was like a chalk talk. No. I can tell you that like last year I did the Philadelphia Union media game and Jim Curtin, the head coach, brought the media in and did a whole thing about, you know, this is the system we play. This is what we look for. And like they also showed us like the, the way that they employ uh, VR as a, as a way to have players kind of reenact the, uh, the game and kind of get to replay it visually with the VR headset and everything. It's really cool. But like I know for a fact that some of the people who covered that team have no idea about concepts and, and soccer is the thing I grew up playing. So I, I, I get tactics and, and all that. And I've read some of these people's work and like, they clearly don't understand the systems, whatever. And, and it's the same thing and with hockey. And, and that's You're fine. The same thing with hockey. But, but like it was done in a way that it's, it's not meant to make those people feel bad that they don't understand the, or, or maybe didn't grow up learning tactics, but it does show them like, Hey, these, these are the things that you should look for almost as kind of like a friendly suggestion. And I almost wish that that were a thing, you know, with the Flyers, maybe across the league. I, I don't know, because I think, you know, it puts people in a tricky spot. Because if you're analyzing the game and you don't know what the actual system or the systems that are being, you know, put into place are, you could totally be misreading the game because you're looking for one thing, but the coach is actually requiring the player or telling the player you need to do why. Mm-hmm. So there, there's this like, it's almost like a cognitive dissonance, right? There, there's just this, you're never going to be able to, to give a player credit for something if you don't know what is actually being asked of them. You're just comparing it to what you think is the way that they should have played it. If Correct. that makes sense. Correct. Now that's why I mean it's it's a shame. That's why Hitch was you know one of the last of a dying breed in the sense that he felt it was important that we knew what they were doing. That way we could be be smarter about the way we were writing about the game. And he's a teacher. I mean he's you know we didn't even get into. It. I, I wanted to, and I just again the, you know I told him we'd keep it to an hour. But like he's a he's a uh, Civil War historian. Like, I don't know if you know that, but he loves the American Civil War and everything that goes on with that and the, ta- the, the tactics that were used by the generals. And, you know, and he's, I mean, he has studied it all. 
he actually at one point offered to uh, offered to uh, have a couple of books on his bookshelf in his office to give them to me to read. And I, I was going to take them up, take them up on the offer until I knew I knew I would never get to them, and I would feel bad if I gave them back to him having not read them. So I did not take them. Um, I did take a book on um, the art of coaching that he had. Uh, I forget who wrote it, but it was it was some Canadian author, uh, and it was an older book, but it was something that he felt was kind of how what led him to you know one of the approach that he took to coaching the you know the Flyers team that he had. So I did read that one. Um, but like he was great with that stuff, man. Like he wanted you to understand. He wanted you to know. So that way you could tell the story the right way. And he was willing to help you, you know, as long as you were able to say, you know what? And he played the media well. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, a lot of it was the, the game of, you know, managing the media. And you know the drill. If, if you're good with the media, the media is usually nicer to you. And if you're not good with the media, the media is usually harsh, more harsh with you when you screw up. Um, so, yeah, Hitch played that game, of course. Um, but it wasn't like he was currying favor at all times. He was trying to make it a two-way street. He wanted to be helpful to us as well. Mm-hmm. Seemed like a nice guy. He's great. And so it's what makes the uh, the coaches like that who are good people and are also trying to, I don't know, be respectful of of you and, and your professional responsibility. It makes that stand in stark contrast to some of the other kinds of coaches that we've seen that may or may not have uh, coached oh, yeah. in yeah. town before. And uh, yeah. So anyway. <laughs> Yeah, hey, Russ, I hear we got a couple of five star reviews. My friend, we we actually got two new five star reviews. And we, and we, you know, listen, there's nothing that makes Anthony Sanfilippo smile quite like a five star review. Well, like I mentioned before, a nice little uh, brisk iced tea in the press box kind of makes the man smile. Sometimes a nice uh, Philly soft pretzel, a little bit of mustard, if I remember correctly, uh, also spicy makes brown. Him, spicy brown mm-hmm. uh, makes the man smile, but. No, in, in all seriousness, what does he love the most? He loves those five-star reviews, so keep them coming. Uh, one over here on Facebook that I'm trying to pull. It was actually the one that I think I alluded to in our last episode. It, it uh, ended up going up live here. Devin Snader. Five stars. This show is the best Flyers podcast. Very legit info. No BS here. Keep up the good work, boys. Thanks, Devin. I mean, how do you like that? That's about as as on point as it gets, right? It's succinct and to the point, but it's accurate. Yeah, I mean, that's what we go for. That's what we shoot for, right? We want to be, we want to be, you know, no BS. We want to be honest. We don't want to succinct. Wanna, succinct. You know. It's a great word. I think we've now used the word succinct three times in the show. So today's mm-hmm. show is brought to you by the word succinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also we've got um, another five star review came in uh, middle of last week. And this one's by Sour Patch Kids Belieber, smiley face. Don't know how you make that your name, but by all means, thank you. Good information, five stars. Good show overall. The hosts have a good time connecting us or connecting to us, the fans. They also provide solid content to what is going on with the Flyers from the past, present, and future. So thank you, Sour Patch Kids Belieber. Smiley face. I have to think that that was a name that they came up with a few years ago. Maybe. Maybe it's kind of like when you're like soccer kid one, one, three, seven, eight, you know, and then like you become an adult and you're like, Oh, I guess I should probably change my email for being soccer kid. I don't know. Maybe the person, listen, hold on. Wait, Anthony, you like sour patch kids. I do. They're not my favorite, but I do like them. 
Are you a believer? Did you leave this review, Anthony? Are you out here trying to pad our stats? No, but I'll tell you, I, I used to have, it's funny when you talk about that, the old email name or whatever. So when I first got email, I was with Earthlink. Remember Earthlink? Do you remember Earthlink? I do. I had Earthlink. Okay. So I had Earthlink and we had gone out. Um, I was, you know, in my twenties and we had gone out for a quizzo night and we were at this bar that doesn't even exist anymore down in South, in uh, South Philly. And, um, the guy who was running the quizzo um, had taken all of his, or almost all of his questions from that day's newspaper. And I just so happened to have read it, right? And I was like, so I'm sitting there at our table and I pretty much knew almost all the answers. And so we were through three rounds of a four round quizzo and we were in first place and with an almost perfect score. And uh, so the guy announces it and says that we're in first place. He's waiting like 10 minutes before he starts the final round. So he announces we're in first, and this drunk guy gets up, shaggy white beard, a little bit of long, long silver hair, staggers over, smells like a Budweiser, slams his hands on the table and goes, are you guys cheating? And the other people that are there with me are like, no, no, not at all. He's like, they're pointing to me. They're like, he knows all the answers. He, he knows every answer. And he leans in, and I could smell the beer even more. And he's right in my face. He goes, who do you think you are, the freaking boy genius? So my email address from that point forward was boygenius37 at earthlink.net. And I kept the boy genius for a very long time that I was no longer a boy, but I kept it <laughs> well into my 30s that I was still the boy genius. So, I'm a real boy. <laughs> Get a drag of a Marlboro. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. You know, I can't believe that you didn't bring this up. And I, I, I waited the whole show to see if, if you were going to make mention of it. But we're you're not wearing a flyer shirt tonight for no, no, the first no, no, time no, ever? No, no, no. no, no. It's, it's May 19th. 46 years. There it is. 46. Well, I, I didn't know. If, I mean, people don't know necessarily that we're recording tonight. I mean, obviously we were. So this was announced that this was going to be released yesterday, this mm -hmm. podcast. Mm -hmm. Then it was, then you put a tweet out that it was coming out this morning. Mm -hmm. And now you know, then you had to put another tweet. No, I put a tweet out this morning that said it was going to be out today. Yeah. yeah. But yesterday it was coming out today. I, whatever. <laughs> so it kept getting delayed. So anyway, so we're, recording it. Yeah. we're recording it. feels like forever ago doesn't it 1974 the year i was born let me tell you about what the world was like in 1974 anthony i remember being a young man in 1974 and that's no, not true that's not true no i do know that i was you know uh what four months old and that when um they won the stanley cup i was asleep in my uh crib and that my father jumped up so high and he hit the hit the ceiling. My dad's tall. And when the flyers won and it hit the floor and it woke me up and my mother got really pissed off because <laughs> she had just put me down for a nap. But my dad didn't care. They, they just won the Stanley Cup and so they were celebrating. Um, and I was crying in my, uh, in my cribs upstairs when it happened. We're going to play 1974 trivia really quick. Are you ready? Oh, boy. Okay. Let's I don't remember much, the year, so this let's is see, let's see how much you know about purview. Let's see okay. how much you know about your birth year. Okay. Are you ready? Go ahead. <clears throat> Who was the president in 1974? Well, two different presidents in 74. Yes. First one 
who was Richard Nixon, who had to resign because of Watergate, who uh, who took over for Nixon, Gerald Ford, the only president okay. not officially elected. Well then, all right. Top song that year. Oh Jesus! Top song that year <sighs> was the song "The Way We Were" by this female artist. Um. We were. I'm going to say Donna Summer. That is incorrect. I don't know. This woman was in Meet the Fockers. Oh, Barbara? Barbara Streisand. Well yeah, done. Yeah, Barbara Streisand. One of the biggest movies to come out that year included a Mel Brooks movie. Blazing Saddles? Indeed it was. Yeah. Uh, do I want to go with any more? Yeah. Well, Yes. This children's building toy was introduced in 1974. It's not Lego. It's not Lego. No. Oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. I went the wrong way. I was thinking connects. This is a game that people like to play with their kids. It's not a very complicated game, but there is some strategy involved. It's a vertical game. Connect four. Connect four. There it is. There it is. So there you go. Yeah. Well, 1974 trivia. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me like the price of milk or something. I'm like, I no. Know. Do you know what the price of a stamp was? Seven cents. Higher? Uh, Twelve. Lower? <laughs> Nine. Higher? <laughs> Ten and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Ten cents. How about that? Come on. That's pretty good. Remember when we used to play uh, Name That Flyer? Or Who's I That I do flyer? remember that. Yeah. I think we might have to bring that back next week. So uh, Okay. If you're listening and you follow us on Twitter at Philly at Joanne Broad, at Snow the Goalie, uh, feel free to, to lend a hand with uh, the Who's That Flyer. You can also send an email to snowthegoalie at gmail.com uh, if you so choose and you want to give us some feedback on the show or if you have some thoughts. Um, we did have somebody propose an idea. I, I forgot to bring this up to you last week about a potential series of, of episodes to run if we ever run out of guests, which, by the way... Let's get this out of the way. Drum roll, please. I didn't have the uh, soundboard queued up for this uh, this episode, or I would have actually played the drum roll thing that I have on the soundboard. Anyway, our uh, guest on next week's episode, Anthony, will be former Flyers captain Dave Poulin, Flyers Hall of Famer. Yeah, D- Dave Poulin will be joining us next week. Um, Dave and then we also have one lined up for June 1st. Are we announcing that today too? or do you want to I don't wait? think we should yet. I don't think we should. The one on June 1st, I think is going to be very exciting. I think Dave Pullen is Dave Pullen's a really nice get. That's going it's to be awesome. what our, our second Flyers Hall of Famer mm-hmm. uh, since the pandemic started, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty impressive. Darn it. Um, the one on June 1st is going to be, that's going to be one, ladies and gents. That's going to be a show you won't want to miss. You can start sending your guesses over over our way now on Twitter and on Facebook, and, and we'll be happy to field those. And we'll we'll see how many people get it right. But I think that's going to be a show that a lot of people are, are going to uh, really enjoy. I also think it's very fitting, Anthony. I don't want to give too many clues, but I think it's fitting that, that we're going to have this person on at this time of year. Oh, that's a good clue. That's a really good clue. See what I did? That's pretty good. That's a really good clue. People should be able to figure that out now. Tip of the cap to myself. Oh, I just pulled a muscle. Cut myself on the back again. Anyway, this was a long episode. I think this is going to end up being another two-ish hour episode. 
Yeah. Uh, we gave everybody a break last week. We kept it kind of short on either end of the interview, but we had a lot to cover. And instead yeah. of hitting people with two, uh, two episodes, we thought that, you know, one big jam-packed episode. Based on the analytics of our listeners, I think we're, it's safe to say that the, uh, the folks stick around for, uh, for these mm-hmm. episodes. So uh, listen, if you can, go over to uh, Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review there. It helps us with, uh, with our ranking across not just the United States, but some of the other countries that we've been... Uh, Canada, Sweden, fighting. and Australia. Yes. Yes. I want to hear from the people in Australia. I know this isn't a VPN thing, by the way, because uh, I had somebody DM me saying, like, are you sure that there are people listening in these other countries? Yes, I'm positive. Apple Podcasts uh, does not report based on VPN. So take that. Um, anyway, thanks for listening to another episode of Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, people's podcast, players podcast, Peter Light podcast, Pampers podcast, prognosticators podcast, presidential podcast, the propcast, the canoeblecast, the comcast. Yes. Oh, yes. And next week, it'll be the pooling cast. There's another P. Pool cast. Pooley. This is no, no. Pool, Pooley. Pooley cast? Pooley cast. We'll come up with something for next week. Anyway, thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter, at Philly at Broad at Snow the Goalie. Read the stuff we do on CrossingBroad.com and, of course, Facebook.com slash Snow the Goalie. For Anthony, I'm Russ. Talk to you next week.